I must emphasize at the outstart that the Honorable Elijah Muhammad is not a politician. That's right. That's right. So I'm not here this afternoon as a Republican, nor as a Democrat. Tell him, brother. Not as a Mason, nor as an Elk. Well, tell us what you're here for. Not as a Protestant, nor a Catholic. That's right. Not as a Christian, on, nor a Jew. All right, not as a Baptist, nor a Methodist. Yes. In Come fact, on. not even as an American. Yes, because if I was an American, the problem that confronts our people today wouldn't even exist. That's right. So now we ain't Americans, huh? So I have to stand here today as what I was when I was born, a black man. Before there was any such thing as a Republican or a Democrat, we were black. Before there was any such thing as a Mason or an Elk, we were black. Before there was any such thing as a Jew or a Christian, we were black people. In fact, before there was any such place as America, we were black. And after America has long passed from the scene, there will still be black people. I'm gonna tell you like it really is. Every election year, these politicians are sent up here to pacify us. They're sent here and set up here by the white man. This is what they do. They send drugs in Harlem down here to pacify us. They send alcohol down here to pacify us. They send prostitution down here to pacify us. Why, you can't even get drugs in Harlem without the white man's permission. You can't get prostitution in Harlem without the white man's permission. You can't get gambling in Harlem without the white man's permission. Every time you break the seal on that liquor bottle, that's a government seal you're breaking. Oh, I say it, I say it again, you've been had. You've been took. You've been hoodwinked, bamboozled, led astray, run amok. This is what he does. God, if your life had a face, I would punch it. Yeah. Wait, what? Let me ask you something. Why would always you make the point of saying someone's not a genius? You think I'm especially not a genius? Veronica, why are you pulling my dick? Suck my fat one, you cheap dime store hood. Hello, everyone, and welcome to another installment of The Greatest Moments in the History of Forever. I'm Zach. I'm Matt. And this is episode number 310, Malcolm X. And this is listener request number 36, courtesy of Peter. And this is our very first paid listener request. Whoa. Which is not something we're going to mention every time, but I figured since this is the first and we're kicking off... A seemingly endless run of listener requests over the next couple of months. Might as well acknowledge it. Thanks so much for the support. It's basically what keeps us going. Yeah, and Peter sensed no two better people to handle this type of material. (laughs) (laughs) Yeah, this one is a little daunting. Not only is it very long, but it is chock full of things that I'm sure that a lot of people would want to hear two white chuds <laughs> sitting on a couch yeah, discussing. But we're going to do our best That's because right. this is an epic movie and it is also considered a 
big time classic. I know Definitely. that Scorsese and Roger Ebert both pick this as one of their top films of the 1990s. I just know that because Scorsese was mm. filling in for Siskel, who had died or something, by the oh. end of the 90s. So he was on the show with wow. Ebert, and they were doing the top tens of the 90s. I did just pick up the Criterion 4K in the most recent flash sale after watching it on streaming. All right. So, there you go. There you go. Folks, follow the show on Twitter at GreatestPod. And make sure you subscribe to the podcast on Apple Podcasts, Podbean, etc. And please give us a rating and review on Apple Podcasts if you have not already done so. If you'd like a free sticker, that can be arranged on Twitter at GreatestPod. Or you can email us, GreatestPod at gmail.com. Yeah, shipping uh, worldwide. Yeah, for sure. That's the one free thing that still remains. Mm -hmm. If you'd like to do a listener request, stay tuned to the end of the program. I'm not going to bog this down with those details again right now. And you can find us on Letterboxd, Zach1983, and Matt Crosby on there. Malcolm X was released in the year 1992, directed by Spike Lee, written by Lee and Arnold Pearl based on the autobiography of Malcolm X as told to Alex Haley. There's a little bit more involved with the script that we'll get into shortly. It was hard for me to timestamp it just watching it. It looks good. Like, it looks more recent than 92. Yeah, it was shot by Ernest Dickerson. I think this was the last time he worked with Mm. Spike Lee, and he went on to be a director in his own right. If you have not yet seen Malcolm X or would like to rewatch it, you can do so for free on HBO Max and Tubi right now. If you pay for HBO Max, it'll be free. Well, Tubi is free. Yeah. But you would have to watch commercials, which Uh I'm sure would make this like four hours long. And make sure, yeah, I was going to say, set aside a decent chunk of your day. (laughs) Make sure you've got a week to commit to this. The budget for the film was $35 The box office was $73 It feels bigger than, what did you say, $35 Yeah, well, it was a constant battle Mm -hmm, with Warner Brothers over the budget of the film. Denzel Washington put up his salary to get this film made. Initially, Spike Lee requested $33 million for the film, a reasonable sum considering its size and scope, but much more than his previous budgets for his other films. Because Lee's five previous films combined had grossed less than $100 million domestically, Warner Brothers offered $20 million for a two-hour 15-minute film, plus $8 million from Largo Entertainment for the foreign rights. When the film went $5 million over budget, Lee kicked in most of his salary, but the financiers oh. shut down post-production. Lee went public with his battles and raised funds from celebrity friends, including Oprah Winfrey, Michael Jordan, and Bill Cosby, to regain control of the project. Hmm. After a positive screening of a rough cut, Warner Brothers kicked in more funds. It's a different version of Kickstarter. We've got like Oprah Winfrey ready to throw down. (laughs) The money from his rich friends were donations, not loans or investment, which allowed Lee to fully follow his vision, meaning he didn't have to like pay that money back (laughs) or worry about that. It was a full straight donation. The film was nominated for two Academy Awards only, Denzel Washington for Best Actor, which he lost to Al Pacino for Scent of a Woman. Wow. You see, those are the games that you play. Yeah. When you have to start doing makeup 
That's Oscars right. for know. previous films. It's because frustrating. Then somebody gets looked over, and yes, Denzel ultimately wins Best Actor for Training Day, which is a cool film, and we'll probably Definitely, do it but someday. But it seems like this should have been the one. Yeah, I would agree with that because Pacino should have won in the seventies. Yes, at least once. It was also nominated in the category of Best Costume Design for Ruth E. Carter. She did not win for Malcolm X, but has since won two Academy Awards in that category for Black Panther and Black Panther Wakanda Forever, becoming the first African-American woman to win multiple Oscars in any category. The year that Malcolm X came out, the nominees for Best Picture were Unforgiven, The Crying Game, A Few Good Men, Howard's End, Scent of a Woman, which, baffling how that happened. Really? Best Director were all of the directors of those films, except for Rob Reiner, who did not get nominated for A Few Good Men. Instead, Robert Altman was nominated for The Player. Oh. So somehow, Spike Lee in this film failed to get nominated for anything, which I think that when you talk about the history of the Academy Awards and Oscars so white and that whole thing, this is a prime example which we also probably touched on a little bit with Do the Right Thing, yeah, which was three years earlier. It took a long time, and I I don't know that we're even still in the right place with the awards, although obviously there's been more diversity and representation in recent years. I know. But again, it's just another reason not to give a shit. I get it. There's a whole history there, but you look back and you're like, man, this just seems like such a big movie. Denzel with this monumental performance year after year with these Oscars. Malcolm X was a film that took forever to come to fruition. I can understand that. The film's producer, Marvin Worth, knew Malcolm X in real life. Their friendship played a huge role in Worth acquiring the rights to tell Malcolm X's story way back in 1967, even though it took over 20 years. In the meantime, Worth produced his own Oscar-nominated documentary on the subject and commissioned numerous screenplays, including one by David Mamet. Oh. At one point, Eddie Murphy was interested in a screenplay. When Spike Lee came on board, he read all the different screenplays and opted for the first one written by James Baldwin. So you may be thinking, well, I just listed who wrote this movie. James Baldwin's name was not on there. So it goes on. Mm Mm-hmm. In 1968, Worth commissioned a screenplay from novelist James Baldwin, who was later joined by Arnold Pearl, a screenwriter who had been a victim of McCarthy-era blacklisting. However, the screenplay took longer to develop than anticipated, and Pearl died in 1971. Baldwin developed his own work on the screenplay into the 1972 book One Day When I Was Lost, a scenario based on Alex Haley's The Autobiography of Malcolm X, In 1976, Baldwin wrote of his experience, I think that I would rather be horse-whipped or incarcerated in the forthright bedlam of Bellevue than repeat that adventure. Baldwin died in 1987. Several authors attempted drafts, including Mamet, David Bradley, Charles Fuller, and Calder Willingham. Once Spike Lee took over as director, he rewrote the Baldwin-Pearl script. Due to the revisions, the Baldwin family asked the producer to take his name off the credits. Wow. Thus, Malcolm X only credits Pearl and Lee as the writers, and Malcolm X and Alex Haley as the authors of the autobiography. What a journey of of a script. Well, and this may tie into the lack of Academy Award representation. The topic of Malcolm X in particular was always a little bit controversial and incendiary. 
And I think it took a long time for the tide to turn back. There was a cultural shift in the 80s and early 90s, which brought Malcolm X back to the mainstream. Part of it was the influence of the early days of hip-hop, hip-hop culture. Oh, yeah. It was a lot of the literature in response to the presidencies of Ronald Reagan and the first George Bush, different things of that nature. But it led to more of a public appetite for Malcolm X material. And in the three years before the movie's release, sales of the autobiography of Malcolm X had increased 300%, and four of his books had a nine-fold increase in sales between 1986 and 1991. So that illustrates where the country was at in terms of the interest. Yeah, I got to tell you, as a uh, five-year-old in 92, a lot of this not on my radar at the time. (laughs) After all of this pre-production, Warner Brothers decides to go forward with the film. Originally going to direct it is Norman Jewison, famous for directing In the Heat of the Night, Fiddler on the Roof, Moonstruck... The Thomas Crown Affair. Eventually, he would work with Denzel Washington on the film The Hurricane. Oh, yeah. He's actually still alive, which is crazy because he's very old. Yeah. When Jewison was set to direct, Denzel becomes attached to the project to play Malcolm X. A protest erupted over the fact that a white director was slated to make the film. Again, when we go through these histories, this is not a movie I knew a ton about the making of. I just assume... You know, this is a Spike Lee vehicle. This is a passion project. I just need to stop thinking that about movies from the past because it's almost never the case. You could <laughs> yeah. fill volumes, libraries Every with time. what you don't know. Every time I'm wrong. <laughs> I always think that it's like, oh yeah, this was like a passion project for this director. He really wanted well, to Well, I do think it like... was a passion project for Spike Lee. Well, okay. But he came Spike Lee it, right? was one of the main voices of criticism. Well, yeah. Okay. Since college, he had considered a film adaptation of the autobiography of Malcolm X to be a dream project. So you're right. right. But that's not how it came to be, But it's not always how it works with the rights to these things. Lee and others felt that it was appropriate that only a black person should direct Malcolm X. Eventually, Jewison leaves the project. As Lee himself has pointed out, Jewison was also unsatisfied with the version of the script he was using, but Lee does say he bowed out gracefully, and Lee has continued to show gratitude. I remember him appearing on Bill Simmons' podcast, and he was talking about how Norman Jewison didn't have to do it, didn't have to give it up to him, but then did. And it all worked out. Denzel Washington stays on. They had previously worked together on Mo' Better Blues, which I think came out in 19... I want to say 90? They would go on to work together a couple more times as well. He Got Game and Mm -hmm. Inside Man. But it was a powder keg of emotion. I think in his own unique way, Malcolm X inspires this differently than even other civil rights leaders of the time, other public figures. There's a lot of personal connection to it. I don't know if you would attribute that to the specifics of what he said when he was alive or the way in which he was killed and sort of the mystery and controversy over that, which is recently is the last couple of years, a couple of the convictions were overturned for two hmm. of the guys who had always insisted they were innocent. Wow. I don't know what it is exactly, but it's a powder keg of emotion. It speaks to the significance of the project and the actual real human investment because soon after Spike Lee was announced as a director and before its release, Malcolm X received criticism by black nationalists and members 
of the United Front to Preserve the Legacy of Malcolm X, headed by poet and playwright Amira Bakara, who were worried about Lee's portrayal of Malcolm X. One protest in Harlem drew over 200 people. Some based their opinion on dislike of Lee's previous films. Others were concerned that he would focus on Malcolm X's life before he converted to Islam. Baraka bluntly accused Spike Lee of being a, quote, buppy, which I'm assuming is a black yuppie, but I'm not sure. Stating we will not let Malcolm X's life be trashed to make middle-class Negroes sleep easier, she says. Compelling others to write the director and warn him not to mess up Malcolm's life. So he's getting direct Yeah, I mean, that is a lot of pressure. Some, including Lee himself, noted the irony that many of the arguments made against him mirrored those made against Jewess in the first place. Oh, wow. It's going to be a lightning rod with something like this. A lot of emotion... And I don't want to necessarily make the direct comparison to Martin Luther King or even other important historical figures that weren't African-American or were different races from different countries or whatever. I just don't know if there would necessarily be the same outpouring of emotion now, certainly. I think it was just very unique to Malcolm X and unique to that time period yeah. that people were that always seems to rediscovering be how it works. him in a way. Yeah. However, Malcolm X's widow, Dr. Betty Shabazz, served as a consultant on the film, and Lee did the research. He understood how important it was to get the story right. Some of it probably stems from a personal connection that people feel to a bigger story. Who has ownership of that story? It's a real visceral thing Mm -hmm. that people feel, because you have to remember, there's a lot of significance of the film, especially at that time, it's documenting history and marking time. All right. Despite historical inaccuracies, we know that historical films, biopics, whatnot, aren't necessarily accurate, but it's still vital yep. to the story. Because in the future, yeah, this will be the story more than the real story That's to true. some people. And it's one of those things that people are going in ready to pick it apart to or jump on the thing that is wrong. In November of last year, The film Malcolm X celebrated its 30th anniversary, a span of time longer than the space between the man Malcolm X's assassination and the original theatrical release of Lee's film. Hmm. 27 years feels infinite when you're 13 or something, but not so much when you're our age, 39 or my age. Yeah. The only reason I say that is when you're young and you're viewing this film as a new film that just came out or something. Mm Mm-hmm. Malcolm X feels like ancient history because you're a kid. Right. It's before you. Dude, I know. But there are a lot of people who were maybe 20 years old when Malcolm X was killed who are only in their 40s when this movie comes out. So that's why this is so important. It's hard to grasp that, I think, when you're younger. But when you start to appreciate time differently, I know this was still a fresh wound to some people. I think about it all the time now. Not specifically that, but the time before I was born seeming so long ago and in actuality when you start looking at it it's not (laughs) I know I almost cross paths with people in the grand scheme of things that seem like they died a million years exactly before but it was like they only died like 10 years before I was born or something you know that kind of a thing Uh uh-huh head exploding one interesting thing about Malcolm X is that it's rated PG-13 yeah you wouldn't think that I definitely think that was intentional so that kids could see it. Lee encouraged kids to cut school to see the movie. He felt that it was more educational than what they were getting in school. I was thinking there's hard drug abuse and stuff in it, but I guess they don't really show it. 
Well, the one scene where they're shown doing cocaine mm-hmm. almost got it in R. Yeah. That was okay. the closest thing. That's the thing that jumped out to me. Sometimes, as I am wont to do, I like to read quotes here and there. This one comes from Barry Michael Cooper, who wrote a fantastic essay, Painting Superman Black, which comes in the Criterion 4K release, which if you have a 4K player, I would recommend picking it up. Currently shipping to my house. It's an emotional read by the end of it. It has a very personal connection. I'm not going to get into that aspect of it for this podcast because that would sort of be inappropriate, but I'm going to pull a couple quotes here and there that I think contribute to the story of the film. As cineasts worldwide honor the 30th anniversary of Spike Lee's Malcolm X, it's clear that the passage of time has only solidified the film as a masterpiece that functions simultaneously as a mesmeric character study and an unflinching history lesson. Malcolm X is a sober portrait of truth within a nation intoxicated by falsehood. Malcolm X is a seething celluloid abstract painted by Lee in sometimes acylatonic brushstrokes and hung in an American Museum of Shame. Malcolm X is a woeful reminder of the past, an acerbic confirmation of the present, and an unsettling harbinger of the future. Simply stated, Malcolm X is one of the greatest films ever made. Powerful stuff. Malcolm X's screenplay which, as mentioned, is co-credited to Lee and Arnold Pearl, is based largely on Alex Haley's 1965 book, The Autobiography of Malcolm X. It seemed like it had to be a pretty thick screenplay. Haley collaborated with Malcolm X on the book beginning in 1963 and completed it after Malcolm X's death. The film dramatizes key events in Malcolm X's life, his criminal career, his incarceration, his conversion to Islam, his ministry as a member of the Nation of Islam and his later falling out with the organization, his marriage to Betty X, his pilgrimage to Mecca, and reevaluation of his views concerning whites, and his assassination on February 21st, 1965. Defining childhood incidents, including his father's death, his mother's mental illness, and his experiences with racism, are dramatized in flashbacks. Yeah, cut together in sort of a erratic pace. Those two dudes that directed everything everywhere all at once Mm -hmm. the daniels they got into a little bit of trouble when they were going in the criterion closet and they picked out malcolm x and they i I, I don't know i say they i'm sure it was only one of them described it as one of his favorite crime movies or something like that huh and people tried to like latch on to that and turn it into a thing and Mm. as is well documented and give us a second not really like huge fans of that movie but even i was kind of like rolling my eyes because every year around oscar time people really try to i know so dumb. Tear people down or whatever. And even Spike Lee himself was kind of like, well, you know, yeah, the first part is a crime movie. It's not really a crime movie, but sometimes people just misspeak. It's not like a huge deal. I know. <laughs> In the name of Allah, the beneficent, the merciful, all praises due to Allah, Lord of all the worlds, the one God to whom praises due forever, the one who came to us in the person of Master Farad Muhammad and raised up the Honorable Elijah Muhammad. I mean... Assalamu alaikum. How do you feel? Who do we want to hear? Are we going to bring him on? Yes, we're going to bring him on. Well, let us hear from our minister, Minister Malcolm X. Let us bring him on with a round of applause. Brothers and sisters, 
I'm here to tell you that I charge the white man. I charge the white man with being the greatest murderer on earth. I charge the white man with being the greatest kidnapper on earth. There is no place in this world that that man can go and say he created peace and harmony. Everywhere he's gone, he's created havoc. Everywhere he's gone, he's created destruction. So I charge him. I charge him with being the greatest kidnapper on this earth. I charge him with being the greatest murderer on this earth. I charge him with being the greatest robber and enslaver on this earth. I charge the white man with being the greatest swine eater on this earth. The greatest drunkard on this earth. He can't deny the charges. You can't deny the charges. We're the living proof of those charges. You and I are the proof. You're not an American. You are the victim of America. You didn't have a choice coming over here. He didn't say, black man, black woman, come on over and help me build America. He said, nigga, get down in the bottom of that boat and I'm taking you over there to help me build America. Being born here does not make you an American. I'm not an American, you're not an American. You're one of the 22 million black people who are the victims of America. You and I, we've never seen any democracy. We ain't seen no democracy in the, the cotton fields of Georgia. There wasn't no democracy down there. We didn't see any democracy on the streets of Harlem, in the streets of Brooklyn, in the streets of Detroit, in Chicago. Ain't no democracy down there. No, we've never seen democracy. All we've seen is hypocrisy. We don't see any American dream. We've experienced only the American nightmare. From the very first moment of the film, you understand that this work will be challenging, uncompromising, inflammatory, a cinematic Molotov cocktail, if you will. Fair to say. We hear voices, a Malcolm X speech charging the white man with being the greatest murderer and kidnapper on earth, among other things, an American flag burning into the shape of an X a very striking, memorable visual. It's like the opening of Patton, right. but inverted in this context. What could patriotism possibly mean? It's definitely provoking the viewer. And then, of course, cut with that, you have the video of the beating of Rodney King, a taxi driver who became famous after his violent arrest by officers of the LAPD. He Did was videotaped by a bystander, George Holliday, mm. The incident raised a public outcry among people who believed it was racially motivated. The subsequent trial of the police officers involved in the beating took place in the spring of 1992, a few months before Malcolm X was released in theaters. The acquittal of the police officers sparked the infamous L.A. riots, which took place over several days at the end of April and the beginning of May of that year. Definitely a big spikely thing to cut in this real footage, basically saying how this ties in or how this is still very relevant. Yeah, he wants you to make sure that everything in this film is as topical and relevant as it was mm -hmm. in the 50s and 60s as when it was first being said and discussed. I think that because of the illusion of reaching some sort of mythical final destination 
and then having the rug pulled out from under with various things that happen and the different things that stir up all of these bad feelings and reopen old wounds, whether it's George Floyd or, or whatever. It, it's a reminder that films like this are not only extremely powerful, but they always stay relevant, which is tragic. And it, I think Lee was probably thinking the material in the film is more relevant than ever in 92. Mm-hmm. But we know now, 30 years later... It would continue it, to be. It's shamefully, once again, more relevant than ever. Lee and Warner Brothers did not have the best of relationships, but putting that aside for a second, it's pretty fucking wild. They did JFK in 91, and then Malcolm X the next year. I know. And there's definitely some similarities in the filmmaking. Well, definitely, and he uses footage from JFK in the film. This was back when studios, despite their various flaws, at least had some balls. Cannot believe that that... I didn't even take a step back to let it soak in what you said and put it into perspective of like today the idea of that happening like jfk malcolm x movies back-to-back years two movies that are definitely designed to provoke right to inflame to get people talking to get people arguing to get people upset for various reasons for different reasons for similar reasons mistrusting the government, all kinds of different things. It's it's a swirling cycle. And I think that it's signifying of a time when there was a certain vitality and urgency of the cinema, which doesn't really quite feel the no. same now. Well, now it feels like these projects would just get canceled in development. Or they would be so watered down yeah, yeah. and boring. They definitely wouldn't include Rodney King footage right. or whatever the equivalent was. People would react differently to that now, too. First of all, people would cancel Malcolm X Mm -hmm. in today's world. That's right off the top. Right. This film only brushes the surface. He was a very controversial figure for a lot of reasons, even when he toned down what he was saying against white people. There was still other things with anti-Semitism, which is always sort of intertwined with these different things Mm -hmm. the different leaders of the nation of islam the ones preceding the ones after yeah elijah muhammad just up until present day that's just part of it and he kind of still thought that stuff even when he changed his mind about white people in general so Mm. that i mean right away there's a lot of things that were controversial about malcolm x that's number one number two if Spike Lee was making a Malcolm X movie today, and he wanted to include the George Floyd footage. I just don't think that people would like that. No, I don't think so. People embraced it differently, though, back then, because there wasn't somebody on Twitter to stir everybody up and start thinking a certain way. Now, he did use footage in Black Klansman. It wasn't George Floyd, but he included the stuff from Charlottesville. Yeah, I guess he did show the guy drive into the Mm -hmm. crowd. Yeah. And it was intense, like right at the end of the movie. Right. So, I don't know. Maybe... It wouldn't be. But I don't know. It just. I guess it just depends. Well, even, maybe he. Maybe he spoke with Rodney King and was like, "I want to use this footage." I, I don't, don't know. know. But even the time between when Black Klansman came out and now seems like we're in a completely different world. <laughs> That's true. Aside from the the urgency of cinema being different in the '90s and how people would take not only Malcolm X but and events in this film and how Spike Lee works, and I'm not just talking about white Americans with an agenda against Lee or whatever they perceive to be against them, quote-unquote conservatives or Republicans. Mm-hmm. I'm, not, I'm not just talking about that. I'm talking about 
sort of the annoying people on Twitter too who are looking for reasons to be mad about definitely. Something. But also, aside from all that stuff, I think that Malcolm X was also part of a wave in the 90s that I definitely remember and experienced in my own way, which is just how major of a presence the 1960s were and how they felt in the 90s. I don't know if that's because people who were young in the 60s were now old enough to get their stuff made, and so there was a lot of emphasis on 60s culture all of a sudden. I don't know. It seems like it's one of those things that never goes away. It was such a critical era in culture, it seems. Oh, yeah, for sure. It was definitely crazy to even think about. I know that when I was getting into the 60s stuff, like in middle school, it always felt like such a strange time. You had presidents being assassinated, political figures, MLK... Malcolm X, violence going on. Woodstock, a lot of rock stars dying yeah. all in a short amount of time. The moon landing, everything. The Charles Manson. Yeah, it's like it's everything. It seems way more volatile than now. Right. Although I think later, future generations will probably look back at stuff that was happening now and be like, "That was so crazy." Yeah, that's true. And people who are a little bit younger than us might be like Tupac and Biggie got shot and it's like all this crazy shit was going on in the nineties. Yeah. It's like I don't know. Kurt yeah, Cobain kills himself. <laughs> People probably perceive things they didn't live through differently. But no, but the I do 60s yeah, the sixties was in, a huge time. It certainly inspires more film, television, art in general than seemingly any other era. We just had a lot of different things yeah. happening all at once. Civil rights movement, Vietnam, music changing, movies changing, mm-hmm. everything changing. Free love. Oh, definitely. That sounds fun. We wouldn't have been included. No. (laughs) Not free for us. We would have been doing some dumbass radio show. (laughs) Talking about movies. Right. The opening of the film is sort of hard to nail down because there's a lot of movement in time, a lot of flashbacks, jumping. We don't start at the very beginning, but we start when Malcolm's a little bit older, but then we do jump back sometimes. I'm going to try to just summarize some stuff i think that this episode will probably function a little bit like some of the other epic films we've tried to tackle Uh where we're probably going to skim over certain scenes certain things yeah i don't think we'll be going beat by beat and have this be a 15 hour episode right so some things may get lost in the shuffle a little bit we're gonna do our best but even the way the movie moves along it feels that way we start in boston of all places Hmm. that was a surprise to me Now, I should point out that over the years, I have seen parts of this film, lots of it, but I don't think that I've ever actually watched it start to finish until recently. I remembered the Mecca stuff, right? and I was actually stunned because it's much shorter in the movie than my memory. I had remembered that being such a crucial part or whatever, just seeing parts of it, but I was like, oh, okay, that kind of comes and goes pretty quick. Well, that's probably just your perception because it's a three-hour and 22-minute right. movie. Right, yeah. In other movies, it probably would be a huge You're right, part. yeah. <laughs> You're pretty late in the game by the time you get to that. Yeah, so we start in Boston, and Malcolm is a young man, 18 or 19 years old. Denzel plays him the entire time. It feels very believable. Mm-hmm. I never really question it, even though he's playing a pretty wide range. I actually think that... I think he looks super young when he's playing the young... Uh, Yeah, I actually think Washington was the age that Malcolm X was when he died. Oh, wow. When he made the film, I believe. Okay. Or close to it. But yeah, you're right. It's a pretty seamless transition covering quite a few years of a man's life. At this point, he's an older teenager. 
He's best friends with Shorty, played by Spike Lee himself. As I probably mentioned in the Do the Right Thing episode, I'm not really a huge fan of Spike Lee as an actor. No. But it doesn't really influence this film at all. Right. He works as this character because he actually provides some comic relief. He's nuts. (laughs) (laughs) And he faints at one point. Things of that nature. These two guys are very into a certain kind of culture. They're using terminology that I wasn't super familiar with. Probably just an out-of-touch white guy Mm -hmm. from a completely different era of time. Fair to say. I'm looking up words that they're saying because I'm like I'm not entirely sure what they mean. They're straightening Just their hair. It and they're calling it a conch. Question mark next to it. <laughs> I'd never heard the word conch before. I, I, I didn't know what that was. Mm. But I guess it's when you straighten your hair. Unfamiliar. Or maybe it, just an, an African-American straightening their hair. I don't know. We, we sound ridiculous. Yeah. <laughs> but that's what they're into. They're into flashy clothes, street hustling, right? different things to make a buck. This whole thing at the barbershop, I was like, man, this seems like a tough thing to go through. (laughs) His scalp seems like it's on fire the way he's reacting. There's a quick flashback to Omaha, and there's narration. And we learn that Malcolm Little's mother is pregnant with him. The house is attacked by the Ku Klux Klan. When Malcolm's father is out on the road, he's a preacher, a minister. There's a striking shot of the cowardly clansmen riding up a hill on horseback into the giant moon on mm-hmm. the horizon. The way they filmed this was interesting, too. They actually filmed that during the day. That part looks super cool. It's a photograph of the moon that they superimposed to make it look bluish or black wow. in the background. But it was during the day. <laughs> Lee actually called it an homage to E.T. Wow. I guess because the moon was so big. <laughs> I don't know if he was joking or, or what. Yeah. It's interesting, though. They say Omaha, and I know Omaha is not like a booming metropolis, but this is definitely the country. This has got to be like outside of Omaha. It seems like they're in the middle of nowhere. Well, you realize that this was like the 20s. Yeah, I know, but Omaha (laughs) is a city. Is it? Well, okay. A small city. (laughs) Folks. Yeah. As I said, Malcolm's father was a preacher. He preaches freedom, independence, and self-respect. And he's also talking about the idea of leaving America and returning to Africa, which will be a part of Malcolm's material that he will speak on later, sort of his platform. This idea of separation of the blacks and the whites. And this is another thing that is sort of controversial, not necessarily just from the perspective of knee-jerk, sensitive white people who take this as anti-white or black supremacy or anything like that, which the film definitely touches on. But Elijah Muhammad and certain other people of that era who spoke on these things would sometimes accept money from the Ku Klux Klan Hmm. and work with them because they were kind of going towards the same goal in a way. Okay which is what you get into when you're talking about Uh anti-integration. You're basically talking about segregation and the whole concept of creating a place exclusively for black people, separate from white people. So this is some other stuff that the film doesn't really touch on, but again, is probably something that would get canceled now. I think so. I think that that's what's cool about different eras, though. I think these figures are a little bit more complicated and complex than just the all good, all bad. Definitely. 
whatever. And there there has to be much more nuance in your appreciation and understanding. Mm-hmm. Life is far more in the gray than what people want it to be. I found myself in awe of the enormity of this undertaking for Lee, Washington, all involved. I know. There's a lot of pressure on them. Lee jokes about it now, about how he and Denzel had their passports ready when the film came out, just in case they had to flee the country, because they were so nervous (laughs) about how people were going to react to it. Early on, Malcolm gets involved with two women. There's Laura, played by Teresa Randall, who most people would probably know from the Bad Boys films. She was also in some of Lee's other films. I think she's in Jungle Fever. She's not a huge part in that, but... She is the star of Girl 6, which is not one of Lee's best, but as I was saying to you, it's one of the first Spike Lee films I saw, oddly, on like a free weekend of some premium channel. Oh, yeah. And it always stuck with me because it's about a phone sex worker and I was like a horny teenager. Yeah, that is an interesting topic. I've always been a fan of her. I don't know why she doesn't really act much. She hasn't really done anything since 2010 except for the latest Bad Boys film, which Hmm. is sort of disappointing. Well, sometimes people just move on. She's a young... African-American woman who is trying to remain a virgin. Mm -hmm. She lives with her grandmother, kind of a strict religious upbringing, which flies in the face of what young Malcolm is interested in. Yeah, he's out looking for a good time. Yeah. And he crosses paths with Sophia, played by Kate Vernon. Sophia. A white woman. Full court press from Sophia, I'd say. Yeah, and it's interesting that through the course of the film, you never really... Are sure of what her... Agreed. Was she just interested in the experience of being with a black man? Or did she really have feelings? Like, she was she actually initially just attracted to him and made a move, but knew that they lived in a time where that probably wasn't going to really happen? I don't know, but when she gets in the world, she's along for the ride. Kate Vernon, she was in Pretty in Pink, 24 episodes of Battlestar Galactica. She still acts now. I didn't immediately know who she was, but... She seemed recognizable to me, but then when I took a look at the IMDb, I was like, uh, I don't know that I've seen any of this stuff. I mean, Both I, you know, pretty her unique. and Malcolm are sort of misbehaving in a certain way. Sure. Although Laura, his uh-huh. quasi-girlfriend, seems to be aware that it's happening. I guess it was just a different oh, time. Oh, yeah. Immediately, like, I know what you're going to do. <laughs> Yeah, well, that's another thing about the time when this movie takes place. The misogyny is inherent Mm -hmm. throughout it, basically. Women are treated like they're on a pedestal, but they're also kind of second class in their own way. And there's almost this assumption that Laura has to just deal with whatever he wants to do. I know. It's an extra insult, I guess, that Sophia is white, but that's almost irrelevant because he's just going to do what he wants. But she has to deal with that. It's fun and exciting. That whole, I'm being lured into hanging out the after hours oh you mean yeah the first time right yeah and then she is engaged to a white guy right who that she will eventually marry even though she travels all over the place goes to harlem (laughs) does a whole world with malcolm but eventually just ends up with that dude (laughs) (laughs) malcolm little was raised in a strong household in rural michigan by his Grenadian mother and African-American father, Malcolm points out through the narration that his mother's mother was raped by a white man and that made her light-skinned, which impacted his skin color, and she married a dark-skinned man because she wanted her children to be more dark-skinned, and he actually felt that she favored his brothers and sisters because they were darker than him. 
which again, this movie, it's such a firecracker of different emotions with all these different things because people were upset about Denzel being cast because they thought he was too dark skinned. Hmm. It's still definitely like a touchy subject, but Denzel was a little darker skinned than Malcolm. He actually was sort of lighter skinned. He had the reddish hair. They call him red early in mm-hmm. the film. And he was actually a lot taller than Denzel Washington, about a few inches. But he Malcolm X was very tall. He was like 6'4". There's that picture, the one time I think he ever was with Martin Luther King, he's like towering over Oh, him. yeah. I point all of that out because... From a very early age, it's clear that skin color weighs heavy on Malcolm X. It's a constant thing, which is understandable, and it makes sense in America, especially during this time period. But for him, it hits closer to home because of what went on with his brothers and sisters and his mother and Mm -hmm. those things. And then he has a preacher who's saying, separate and go back to Africa. Yeah, It's a whole thing. The whole past with his parents is definitely pretty grim. When Malcolm was still a young boy, their house was burnt down, and his father an outspoken activist for black rights, was killed by a chapter of the Black Legion. In a pretty horrific way. The Black Legion was a white supremacist terrorist organization which was active in the Midwestern United States during the Great Depression of the 1930s. It split off from the Ku Klux Klan. The estimates of how many people were actually in, unclear, anywhere from 60,000 to 135,000 people, including Detroit's police chief, evidently. Huh. Which is another point made in the film, too, where they talk about trading in the white sheets for the police uniforms. There's a lot of powerful material in the film, and you know that a lot of it is going to rub certain people the wrong way, which is what makes stuff like this so great, because it's just so direct and honest and brutal, like brutally honest, to the point where you know that people are going to get mad. Oh, yeah. Yeah, I imagine there were some walkouts. Well, I don't know if those type of people were seeing it in the theater. Yeah, that's true, I guess. They were just hearing about it and getting mad. (laughs) Malcolm's father, Earl's murder, was registered as a suicide, and so the family received no compensation I know. That is one of those parts where you're just like, what the fuck? (laughs) I know. Well, who kills themselves by hitting themselves in the back of the head with a hammer? Yeah, it just illustrates how every institution was prejudiced and and racist against people and would deny them anything that they could. Get a brief appearance from Karen Allen as a unsympathetic social worker. Yeah. A lot of faces come in and out of the film. There's a lot of random almost i guess you would call them cameos although some of the people i don't know that they're famous enough to be considered a cameo generally thrilled to see karen allen show up not here a villain malcolm's mother louise's mental state deteriorates and she was admitted to a mental institution kind of tough to see too although tragically she outlived malcolm Hmm. her son i think she lived into the 80s 1980s i believe Malcolm and his siblings are then put in protective care. Malcolm was an excellent student and had dreams of one day becoming a lawyer, but his teacher discouraged it due to his skin color. His teacher, David Patrick Kelly. I know, showing up again. (laughs) It's weird how we do these runs of episodes where people just connect. I'm surprised Debbie Harry wasn't in this movie. (laughs) (laughs) Yeah, not a great role model, this teacher, I wouldn't say. Malcolm was the only African-American child in his entire school, and... He illuminates a different kind of prejudice where he's talking about how the kids treated him like a mascot. Mm. They weren't physically beating him up, but they were so casual about their racism. Right. 
just noticeably being treated differently. Calling him the N-word so frequently that he was immune to it. Like, he thought that it was his name. I don't even think children that age, like, even know that what they're saying is wrong. It's just, it's so ingrained in them that this is just the word Yeah, they're doing something horrible, but it's, like, not hate-driven. To them. It it comes from hate, but to to, to that age, some of them maybe, but yeah, it's just the way things are. It's it's just what it is, and... It's a sad statement. It's so normalized in them that it becomes normalized in him. He's oblivious to the racism at first, at this age. He doesn't even understand it. And then we're back in 1944, not quite 20 years old. That's when Malcolm gets mixed up with Sophia, and together they start a sexual relationship, which of course is taboo. Mm Mm-hmm. They travel to Harlem, where Malcolm meets West Indian Archie, played by Delroy Lindo, another frequent Lee collaborator. He's a gangster who runs a local numbers game. Give me whiskey. Now what did you sing, Jack? The doubles on that gentleman, Jack. That's West Indian Archie. Yeah, what's his angle? Some of this, some of that. Come closer, I'm not fixing to bite you. You look like you're new in town. From what I can see, you're. You're pretty handy with the buckle. You had it coming. Pull up a chair. So what they call you? Red. Red, and I ain't no punk. You better not be. Any cat tore you down in this town, you stand up or you make tracks. Man, live by his rep. You better believe it. So what you do for yourself, Red? Working on the train, selling. You like that job? Keep me out the army. When they're ready for your black ass, nothing can't keep you on the army. Not this boy. So I hear tell you, uh, you're a good man to know. Where you hear that? Boston, where I'm from. Kiss my neck. I ain't never been in Beantown. Well, like the man said, man's rep travels. How about that? You bullshitting me or what? First thing my father ever taught me was you never bullshit a West Indian bullshit artist. Your daddy is West Indian? My mama. She from Grenada, you know? Grenada. (laughs) (laughs) I like this guy. Yeah, I like you, country. (laughs) Grenada. Yeah, but man, where did you get them goddamn vines you got on? And them shoes? Oh, my. Well, maybe we can do something about yeah, that. Yeah, but he's putting a hurting on my vision, man. Right, Damn. Relax. relax now. So how can I get a hold of you? You can't. I get a hold of you. All right. All right, I'll write it down. Mm-mm. You don't ever write anything down. You file it up here, like I do. Because if the man don't have any paper, he will never have any proof. Eh? Yeah. <laughs> yeah, I did. Right. There's an instant connection with Archie taking Malcolm under his wing. They become fast friends and start cooperating in a legal numbers racket. 
the way that it's portrayed in the film that Malcolm gets noticed is that he smashes that bottle on that guy's head who mentions his mother. Mm. That gets Archie's attention. Part of what Archie and his associates do is they don't tell him to get rid of his conk hairstyle. He's still straightening his hair, but they do rein in the flashy, ostentatious style, those right. pimp suits that yeah, he's yeah. wearing. And they also provide him with his first gun, so they're pushing him further into the life of crime. Yeah. I do enjoy this first segment of the movie. It's definitely a great movie start to finish, but this is definitely the era of it that's a little bit more fun. (laughs) I think I know what you mean, but there's less emotion and less power. Yeah, true. When you're talking about some of the, the stuff that comes towards the end of the film, it's almost like anytime you start mixing in this world, whether you're talking about something like Malcolm X or any other historical fiction or biopic, or even something that messes with it, Mm -hmm. like Once Upon a Time in Hollywood, which is building towards an ending, too. Like, anytime you're building towards what you know is coming, there's always it messes with you in a different way. Let me rephrase it, then. I do enjoy this hangout part of the movie. Yeah, and also, I think for a lot of people, not just idiotic white nerds like Mm -hmm. ourselves... This is probably an education because if you, unless you read Malcolm X's autobiography, which I actually did, believe it or not, but I don't really remember it. I was reading a lot of 60s books, probably not really understanding the gravity of all of them. Mm -hmm. The electric Kool-Aid acid test, One Flew Over the Cuckoo's Nest, which we talked about. Anything about the 60s, Jimi Hendrix biography, like all these different books and crazy shit. I attempted to read Helter Skelter, but yes. I was kind of freaked out because I was in middle school. Didn't read it until I was an adult later. Anyway, unless you were one of those people who read the book, this stuff was probably unknown. This was an education. Definitely. Like, oh, For me, I only it, knew the highlights. I didn't really actually know that it kind of started this way with this little bit of a run in a life of crime. The cocaine use in some of these scenes almost earned the film an R rating. I think you should point out when discussing Malcolm X in particular or Spike Lee's early career that Martin Scorsese taught Spike Lee film directing at NYU. Hmm. Unsurprisingly, Lee's Malcolm X has many of the same filmmaking styles as Scorsese's Goodfellas. Both films are autobiographies with voiceover narration and freeze frames sometimes with the voiceover. The opening of both movies intercut between credits and a scene there are flashbacks and various scenes repeated at times and they are also from warner brothers studios with the same aspect ratio and everything i know i was gonna bring up shades of scorsese the thing that i kept thinking was it felt like filmmaking styles jfk meets scorsese that's the way i was feeling for sure yeah Although not quite as chaotic as JFK, yeah. this is a little more linear. True. But JFK, at times, it's hard to even... I know, but you get spurts of the JFK, things happening quickly, quick shots of... Right, but it's still all mostly, mostly about Malcolm. Right. It may Correct. be different Correct. points in his yeah. life. The yeah. JFK thing, it's I know. unlike anything, really. Right. One of the weirder elements of the film, and I guess this maybe has to do with just how people were during this time period, a lot of restlessness. But I did find it strange that Laura shows up in New York City too. Mm -hmm. Like they're all in Boston and then they're in New York and then she gets involved with some guy who's on drugs. Did she come to New York because of Malcolm? We don't know that's left out of the movie, but he sees her at that bar and then he's talking to that other girl about her. 
I think about this a lot when I'm watching movies from the past or time periods from before I was born. I'm constantly thinking that travel, moving around was like so much more of a hassle back then, but it seems like people do it way more like in these stories from the past. Well, think about it. You didn't yeah. have TV, internet, cell phones. No reason to stay home. Home video. Yeah. You had nothing. <laughs> right. you, you just... I think that moving and changing experiences was more common because That's there was true. less to do. Yeah. Especially when you were younger right. and you hadn't quite settled down yet. Not for everybody, but yeah. probably more than today by far. Mm-hmm. It think. does seem that way, even though that goes opposite of what I would have thought. But yeah, I do think that that's true, that more people did move around. Well, let's think about it. So far, we've talked about Boston, rural Michigan outside of I know. Lansing, Omaha. Now we're in Harlem, New York. And he's and that 20 would be years like old. A daunting move as like a young adult. Well, he worked for the the trains. Yeah, and that's probably why he was interested in being in New York more, just mm-hmm. because of the different routes that he was probably on. But things don't stay friendly for long between Malcolm and Archie. While everyone is fucked up, Malcolm bets three numbers. He bets eight two one one two eight two one eight. This confused me Same. a lot. A, first of all, I don't really know much about the numbers racket. I guess it's you no bet idea. these numbers, and if the three numbers hit, it's sort of like a lottery, but it's illegal. When they get into their whole confrontation, I was like, yeah, Malcolm's right. <laughs> but like, it doesn't seem like that's actually true based on the way it plays out. It's true that it was never registered as a bet. I think that the movie portrays it as he is right. Because okay, yeah. when I watched it, a se- I did watch this twice. The okay. second time- wow. I went back and was like, I need to pay attention to this because it seemed like it, it was right. It did stick with me, yeah. I think what happens okay, is he does bet then. it, and West Archie's whole thing is that he does everything in his head. He never writes anything down. doesn't want to leave any paper trail, doesn't want to get busted, whatever. So he throws some money out when they're doing the coke, and he says, I want these three numbers. Mm-hmm. It's 821 at night. So he says 821-128-218, different combinations right. of those numbers. 821 ends up hitting. Yeah, and he says eight two one, but I don't think that Archie ever put those bets in or whatever, because he yeah. goes and checks later and confirms that yeah, eight two one wasn't in. But I okay, think it was so up he to, was right. I think it was up to him to yeah. put it in. I think well, that's how right. it's in in the movie. <laughs> okay, right. Yes, I don't know about reality. Who knows? Yeah, well, yeah. Archie disputes that Malcolm had eight two one and says Malcolm never had the number. A conflict ensues between the two culminating in Archie and his associates trying to kill Malcolm. Seems extreme. Well, it's his rep. Yep. It's all about the rep with him. Right. He would later say that they weren't really going to kill him. (laughs) Yeah, well, he's definitely vulnerable at that point. Right. Malcolm manages to escape and then heads back to Boston where he, Sophia, Shorty, and another woman named Peg, played by Debbie Mazar, Mm -hmm. another recognizable Lee collaborator. Decide to perform robberies to earn money. When Denzel Washington took the role of Malcolm X in the play, When the Chickens Come Home to Roost, which dealt with the relationship between Malcolm X and Elijah Muhammad, he admitted he knew little about Malcolm X and had not yet read the autobiography of Malcolm X. Washington prepared by reading books and articles by and about Malcolm X, and he went over hours of tape and film footage of speeches The play opened in 1981 and earned Washington a warm review by Frank Rich, who was, at the time, the chief theater critic of the New York Times. Upon being cast in this film, he interviewed people who knew Malcolm X, among them Betty Shabazz and two of his brothers, 
Although they had different upbringings, Washington tried to focus on what he had in common with his character. Washington was close to Malcolm X's age when he was assassinated. Both men were from large families, both of their fathers were ministers, and both were raised primarily by their mothers. It's an incredible performance by Washington for a lot of reasons. Not to step on recommendations, which will come later, but I watched a documentary called Malcolm X, which came out in 1972, which is narrated by James Earl Jones, but is primarily a bunch of different speeches and footage of Malcolm X connected together. And it tells kind of a similar story from once he gets into the Nation of Islam. It doesn't really predate that, but you kind of mark the time because he did talk to the press a lot. He did have a lot of filmed speeches and whatnot. And a lot of it is verbatim in this film as mm-hmm. performed by Denzel Washington. And instantly watching that documentary after just having watched this oh. film, their voices were very similar. Wow. And you appreciate the performance even more. And then you factor in this huge age range that he's covering, plus the dramatic shifts and evolution in Malcolm X's life. You're getting me fired up over this Oscar snub. Oh, who cares about that? <laughs> doesn't matter. I know. The Oscars are just good to mark how wrong everything was. Yeah. Part of their little gang here in Boston is a guy named Rudy, who is played by Roger Gwenver Smith, who we remember as Smiley and Do the Right Thing, right. who sold pictures of Martin Luther King and Malcolm X. Rudy thinks he's going to be in charge, but Malcolm Oof. has Shut a different down plan. immediately. <laughs> he just does the- embarrassed. Russian roulette bluff, which of course makes Rudy cave. Yeah, I would have been pissing my pants, I think, if I were him. Now, Rudy's situation with that old white guy, that was, I was like, what is this? I don't know. He gives him a bath? (laughs) (laughs) Because then later when they go and break in his house, that guy has a wife. The whole trajectory of this movie, like not knowing where it's heading, (laughs) this is like an abrupt change at this point. Well, they wanted to cram in all of... Malcolm's various exploits before he became Malcolm X right. when he was still Malcolm Little and he did have this colorful life of crime with different things went to Harlem came back to Boston robbed they didn't even talk about some of the other stuff that I think he was into definitely referenced in some of his speeches seemed like maybe he was some light pimping and mm-hmm. okay. drug stuff yeah. and all kinds of different hustles and rackets and different stuff they just sort of go through a bunch of stuff but yeah all of a sudden they're breaking into this old guy's house and (laughs) yeah and then just caught at this point he's still going by red that's his nickname by 1946 the group has done pretty well for themselves accruing a large amount of money and expensive goods from thievery Hmm. but just like the relationship with archie it doesn't last long they are all arrested and while peg and sophia are each given two years the common sentence for first-time offenders, Malcolm and Shorty are hit with the maximum of eight to ten years in jail. Well, I'm glad they explained the whole thing about how the years don't keep adding. You didn't know what concurrently meant? <laughs> yeah, well, Shorty didn't either, and he passes out. But as Malcolm tells us in <laughs> I mean, the narration, their real crime is sleeping with white women, and that's yeah. why they're getting hit with this. Even just the actual sentence, though, is insane, which I know is part of the movie, but it's I get why he passes out. I mean, what the? <laughs> that is not the sentence you would have been expecting. Pretty early on in Malcolm's prison stint, he gets hit with the solitary confinement, which leads to a whole section of the film. It's almost 
Shawshank-esque. Yeah. Prison. Not fun. Not for me. No, no. I don't think I would like it. I would be dead in the first day. (laughs) Not even shanked or anything. Just dead. Just (laughs) collapsed dead. You actually have to take a shit. In front of the other guy that's living in your room, there's not any privacy at all. You're dead. <laughs> Just fall down dead. <laughs> Just never shit again. <laughs> I know how you feel. Like you want to lay down and die. I brought you something. Yeah, but I don't need no more favors from you. It's nutmeg. Put it in the water. You need something to get the monkey off your back. It's not cocaine, but it'll help some. Drink it slow. Stop it strong. <coughs> so what's your hype, huh? I can show you how to get out of prison. And it's no hype. Yeah, well talk, Daddy. Yo, I'm listening. Hey, this ain't bad. You got some more? That's the last fix I'm giving you. So what you give it to me for then, huh? Because you needed it. Because you couldn't hear me without it. Nigga, get on out of my face. I think you got more sense than any cat in this prison. Why the hell don't you use it? You can't bust out of here like they do in the movies. Because even if you get out, you're still in prison. Yeah, you ain't lying now. You go busting your fist against a stone wall. You're not using your brain. That's what the white man wants you to do. Look at you, putting all that poison in your head. You've been in prison too long, my man, because everybody on the outside conks. Why? Why does everybody on the outside conks? Because they don't want to walk around with a nappy head looking like Looking like what? Like me? Like a nigger? Why don't you want to look like what you are? What makes you ashamed of being black? Let me tell you something. I'm not ashamed of being anything. Let it burn. Nigga, get your hands off of me. Go on, burn yourself, pain yourself. Put all that poison in your hair, in your body, trying to be white. (laughs) I don't hear all this shit. I thought you were smart. Are you just another one of those cats strutting down the avenue in your clown suit with all that mess on you, looking like a monkey? The white man sees you and laughs. He laughs because he knows you ain't white. Man, who are you? No, the question is, who are you? You are lost in the darkness. But Elijah Muhammad has come to bring you into the light. Hmm? Elijah Muhammad can get you out of prison. Out of the prison of your mind. But maybe all you want is another fix. While incarcerated, Malcolm meets a man named Baines. Mm. A member of the Nation of Islam who directs him to the teachings of the group's leader, Elijah Muhammad. This is another similarity to JFK. Brother Baines, who leads Malcolm to the Nation of Islam, is a fictional composite character. In his autobiography, Malcolm X says he was led to the Nation of Islam through letters from his brother and sister. There were people like Baines, though. I think that's also important to keep in mind. But there was no specific Baines. Mm -hmm. And I think Lee had to get a little bit creative with the narrative sometimes because of various threats and different things. He had to leave certain people out of the movie altogether and different 
stuff here and there. Well, Baines would come to be an important figure, though, at least in the context of the movie. Right. Yeah. Now, Elijah Muhammad was born in 1897 and died in 1975. He was a religious leader, a black separatist, and self-proclaimed messenger of Allah, who led the nation of Islam from 1934 until his death in 1975. Now, to get off of that for a second, his predecessor, the guy who basically started the nation of Islam in America, can't remember his name, very mysterious figure who disappeared at some point in the Hmm. 30s. Now, I wasn't sure if that was supposed to be suspicious or what. I guess it was. This whole history was very bizarre. Yeah. But you could lose track of people easier back then. Oh, my God. I know. You go down these rabbit holes with these people who were making moves and doing stuff Mm -hmm. in the 30s. And it doesn't matter if you're talking about somebody like L. Ron Hubbard or one of those guys, like the Satanist guys in the 40s or 30s. You know, like all this weird shit was going on. Not to compare the Nation of Islam to Scientology or Satanism. But you know what I mean? Yeah. Just these different guys. I'm not even talking about like what they were doing. But who they were and where they came from and where they went and I know they, and the traveling like they'll be in California it, yeah. and then they'll be in Michigan because a lot of this stuff was happening in Detroit. There's actually a book by the guy who wrote The Virgin Suicides mm-hmm. called Middlesex, which was actually like a yeah. huge book that he did. And there's that guy, the guy that I'm referencing, the guy that mm-hmm. came before Elijah Muhammad is like referenced in that book because it was a big thing in Detroit. Well, in the 30s, we talked about it earlier. With these types of things, and I guess now, with the internet, social media, all these things, you have a history that follows you around wherever you go. I Whereas, know. like, I think there was a lot more of people just being like, you Credit know what? scores, all kinds of bullshit. My fucking life has not worked out for these first 30 years, so I'm just going to go somewhere else and try again. <laughs> and and change like, my name yeah, a little bit. Right. Yeah. Just get a new attitude. As I said, Elijah Muhammad... Certainly a a complicated figure with a Mm -hmm. complicated legacy. They do kind of get into some of that stuff in the film because it's crucial as to why Malcolm eventually leaves the nation and has a falling out with Muhammad and all those different things. But it's actually probably worse than what they even lead you to believe in the film, which maybe we'll we'll talk about that a little bit more when we get there. But he, needless to say, is an enormous factor in the life and death Absolutely. of Malcolm X. But Baines is attractive to Malcolm because he's fearless, confident, and seems to have answers. Which is something that is a recurring thing when you see anything about time in prison. Mm-hmm. That's what you're looking for. And he seems not like the other prisoners. And it's not long before Malcolm starts listening to this man. I read, study. Because the first thing a black man must have is respect for himself. Respect his body and his mind. Quit taking the white man's poisons into his body. His cigarettes, his dope, his liquor, his white woman, his pork. Pork? Hmm. Yeah, my mama used to say that. Don't eat no pork. Uh, Your mama was right. That pig is a filthy beast. Part rat, part cat, and the rest is dog. All right, pull my coat on this now. What happens if you give all that up? I mean, the pork, and you get sick, and then you get a medical or something? Like when I was on the outside, I ran this hustle. I tried to act like... I'm telling you God's words, not no hustle. And I'm going to tell you, God is black. God is black? Everybody knows God is white. Everything the white man taught you, you accepted. 
He taught you you were a black heathen and you believed him. He taught you to worship a blonde, blue-eyed Jesus with white skin and you believed him. He taught you that black was a curse and you believed that. Did you ever look up the word black in a dictionary? For what? Did you ever study anything that wasn't part of some con? What the hell for, man? Come with me. And we start to see a profound change in Malcolm. Thanks in large part to the words of Baines, Malcolm grows interested in the Muslim religion and the lifestyle promoted by the group and begins to resent white people for mistreating his race. There is a little initial reluctance to fully commit. He's getting interested, but he does have some hang-ups. But then he has a vision in his cell of Elijah Muhammad, who Mm -hmm. is a self-proclaimed prophet and messenger from Allah and all these different things. And this leads to not only a spiritual transformation, but a physical one as well. And we start to see the evolution of this man, Malcolm Little, into a new man. He takes to the message of Elijah Muhammad by way... It's like Allah through Elijah Muhammad, through Brother Baines. Right. He takes to it fast and well. Yeah, yeah, and he's a natural, I would say. He sends letters of his change to not only Shorty at a different jail at this point, but also West Indian Archie and his associates who... Mm. Almost all unanimously laugh this off. Shorty even says, he's gone nuts. (laughs) (laughs) There's a scene towards the end of Malcolm's time in prison where he interacts with Christopher Plummer. He actually interacts with him earlier, but I didn't realize it was Christopher Plummer the first time. (laughs) So I'm only saying it now, (laughs) the second time we see this priest, where they have a debate. I didn't didn't realize that was him. Like Now I can picture it, and it's clear as day to me that that's who it was. Well, he's a lot younger than probably what you're used to. They're talking about the skin color of Jesus and the apostles, which is always sort of a big sticking point for white Christians in America because they're raised in a way where they just believe that these men would have been white, and even though that makes literally no sense. <laughs> but anytime it's pointed out to them, they yeah. you know start to get uncomfortable with that. Malcolm is paroled from prison in 1952 after serving six years, so he didn't quite have to serve the eight to ten. Mm-hmm. And travels directly to the Nation of Islam's headquarters in Chicago. There, Malcolm finally meets Elijah Muhammad in person. And Denzel, I think, did a lot of research. He spoke to other people who went through this and and asked them what it was like. And so then you see him come into the room. He's hunched over because he's taller, but it's part of not feeling worthy. And then he's he's definitely insecure, wide-eyed with almost childlike anticipation to the whole thing. He's Which, emotional. You don't see him in that mode a lot. He's generally a confident dude. Brother Malcolm. Brother Malcolm. He's waiting for you.
full of temptation. When God spoke to the devil about how faithful Job was, the devil argued that it was only God's protective hedge around him that kept him pure. Fact about it, the devil said, remove that hedge and he will curse his maker. Malcolm, your head has been removed, and I believe you will remain faithful. Yes. It's never explained at this point. It only comes up later during a, I believe, talk show appearance as to the specifics of it, but Muhammad does instruct Malcolm to replace his surname Little with X, which symbolizes his lost African surname that was taken from his ancestors by white slave masters. He is rechristened as Malcolm X at this point. This is actually very common with the Nation of Islam, and a lot of the the people that will factor into stuff that happens later, I don't know if we're actually going to name all of them or mention them, but I think it depends on how many other guys come along with your first name mm-hmm. that are high enough up to make a difference. But there's like, I, I mean, I'm not trying to be disrespectful, but just off the top of my head, it would be like James 26X or oh, yeah. something. There would be some number sometimes too thrown in there. And then sometimes gotcha. they would have a new Muslim name attached with that. And sometimes there would be like different variations and different aliases and different names because even the guy that they did catch the one that they shoot and beat up who shot malcolm x he had like various names that were sort of in the process of changing but sometimes it'd be like an x in the middle i don't know i really don't know how it all works yeah it's definitely a science that i'm not familiar with malcolm actually seemed like he was pretty savvy when it came to publicity and absolutely He's public, a being a public figure and all these different things because even when he does change his name he decides to keep it malcolm x mm-hmm. for i don't know the public for professional right. use because it had become such a it's thing. a persona yeah malcolm then returns back to harlem when we see him first preaching on the streets there's a couple of cameos here of those other preachers on stepladders, Bobby Seale, founder of the Black Panthers, and Al Sharpton, oh, yep. the other two guys. Seems like they're really hitting Christians. There's a lot of Christian recruitment outside of churches, basically using the idea that what has this done for you mm-hmm. in this community or as a black person? Has this really helped you? You're looking for answers. You're walking out of here expected to find heaven, and you're not seeing it, so we have the answers for you. It's hard to envision this type of recruiting for any religious group being like successful nowadays. Just with the internet and everything, it just seems like there's way less people interested. In, in religion thing. in general? Yeah. yeah. Yeah, probably. I think that in a way, though, what we were talking about as far as the changing of the world and then the birth of what would be known as the civil rights movement and all these different things happening and a lot of racial tension in the country because you have 
segregation becoming desegregation mm. down south, the fire hoses, the police dogs, horrible stuff that we all have seen, which for some reason, like our fucked up country now doesn't want to teach in schools, at least, you know, half the country. Oh, wow. You know, all this different shit. And so I think that all goes with what we were talking about with like the volatile time period. Now, this would be in the 50s still, but we're we're getting there. Oh, yeah. We're, we're reaching those points. And I think that these different groups, whether it be the Nation of Islam or whatever, that was all part of it. People were looking for answers and there was excitement. Like, you can't rule that out. Like, there's a human response to this. Maybe we are making a change. Maybe things will change. Maybe if I join this group, we True. will have power and we will make change. Yeah. And that is a part of it, too. Now, yeah, I think that in general, maybe there would be less people walking out of churches. But I, I still, well, this, it's this country, it's still pretty, there's still a pretty oh, fair yeah. amount of people that go to church. That's now, would true. you be able to recruit them walking out? I don't know. Seems, but it is interesting. It's civil rights and religion tied together in a way that I don't know if that's quite the way it is now. To that same degree? No, but... yeah. You're probably also associating the idea of like conservative Christians, mm-hmm. which is a little bit different than the type of people that Malcolm was talking to true, in the streets true. of Harlem. Yeah, right. Not exactly the same yeah. mentality there. I think going to church in the 1950s, you're looking at a huge percentage of people. Mm-hmm. And now it would definitely be not as dwindled. Huge, but. It's not necessarily about the religion, the religious aspect of Correct. it. Correct. It's yeah. about the community. It's about the power and numbers. Together we right. can make a change kind of a th- attitude. And that's still very much present in today's culture. Once back in Harlem, Malcolm begins to preach the nation's message. As time progresses, his speeches gather large crowds of onlookers. Shorty reappears briefly. Yep. Malcolm tries to tell him about it. Shorty's not interested. <laughs> kind of like, again, dude, this ain't for me. This is a joke, right? Yeah, he thinks it's a hustle. Which is what Malcolm thought that Baines was doing in prison. Yeah. And Baines hits him with the, this isn't a hustle, this is God's words, which Malcolm will throw back in his face later. Right. But Shorty does provide the updates on some of the faces from the past. Archie's associates, one is dead, he mm-hmm. died on top of a woman, and one is hooked on heroin in some sort of a mental institution. That's right. Sophia ended up married to the white dude she had been engaged to. I'm going to read another passage from Barry Michael Cooper's Painting Superman Black to fill us in on what happened with West Indian Archie. Lee allows us to watch this journey of Malcolm X from hustler to holy man as a slow transformation, but the passage is also put into sharp relief in the scenes between Washington and Delroy Lindo whose towering interpretation of the fearsome but elegiac Harlem gangster West Indian Archie is heartbreaking. Archie is both a father figure and a street corner rival to Malcolm, going from trying to kill his ambitious and cutthroat young charge after being conned by him in a numbers racket to asking for his empathy years later when Malcolm visits him. Archie has been whittled down by the street life and is now a destitute black gangster king, lonely and enfeebled it's rough definitely he has no one he lives alone oh my god i'm describing me (laughs) hold on (laughs) yeah i don't know if you had quite the flashy past that he had but (laughs) (laughs) at least he had some memories to fall back on 
at this point, when Malcolm goes to find Archie in Harlem, Archie can barely move. Uh huh. He doesn't have anyone really to help him in and out of bed or in and out of a chair. He has trouble with his arm. He seems to have trouble speaking. It's a bleak scene. And not that many years have passed. Really. I know. He might have had a stroke or something. It's kind of hard to tell. What well, sometimes happened. when it goes downhill, heavy drug use potentially in the past. Well, yeah, for sure. Malcolm is a faithful student of Elijah Muhammad. We actually see some cross-cutting between Malcolm and Muhammad speaking as if it's one continuous conversation. Yeah. He, he's that They're on tune. the same plane. Malcolm also proposes ideas such as African-American separation from white Americans. Now, one thing that I did find semi-outrageous was when Elijah Muhammad was talking about an appropriate woman for a man, and he said half the man's age plus seven. Yeah. Which, what is this, a playground that I'm on when I'm 14 or something? Hey, when yeah, people right. are saying crazy shit. <laughs> Although half your age plus seven when you're 14 is 14. But, <laughs> <laughs> but you know, people used to like say stupid shit like right. that about having ages. And I was like, what the fuck? And then when he says it, I was like, okay, well, that might be an indication that something is amiss here. I know. Although in all fairness, I don't even think he was following that rule. With some of his women. Half the age minus seven? Uh, maybe even more. <laughs> oh, I mean, boy. He's pretty old, and he yeah, gets accused true. of some horrible things in wow. real life. In 1955, Malcolm meets nurse Betty Sanders, played by Angela Bassett. The two begin dating, quickly marry, and become the parents of four daughters eventually. Quickly becoming the parents of four daughters. No, they quickly marry, at least in the scheme of the yeah. movie. Although I Electric think they, sparks between these two. They actually marry in 58, and in reality, no one-on-one dating was allowed in the Nation of Islam, although it's it seems like that's what's being portrayed in the movie. They're yeah. by themselves kind of a few times. Definitely. They actually get married in 58, so three years later, but during that courting time period, we have the part of the film that I referred to as the Brother Johnson segment which is the first indication of malcolm's real power we get a cameo appearance by peter boyle as a police officer so here we go in 1957 the american public first becomes aware of malcolm x because there's a man a a member of the nation of islam a muslim hinton johnson he's beaten by two nypd officers when he comes upon them beating another man and then they get involved and beat him He ends up with brain contusions, subdural hemorrhaging, things of that nature, but he's just taken to the police station and put in a cell. Alerted by a witness, Malcolm and a small group of Muslims go to the police station and demand to see Johnson. The police initially deny that any Muslims are being held, but then they get a look at the crowd as it continues to grow outside until the police finally have to acquiesce. Malcolm speaks with Johnson and insists he be taken to a hospital immediately. At the hospital, Johnson is treated and then returned to the police station, where now approximately 4,000 people have gathered. Eventually, at an impasse, Malcolm gives a hand signal to the crowd. Nation members silently leave, and then the rest of the crowd disperses after. One of the police gives a quote to a reporter, saying, No man should have that much power. Mm. Because of this incident, he becomes more famous, but also this leads to surveillance, 
oh, yeah. inquiries and then eventually undercover officers trying to infiltrate the Nation of Islam. This now puts you're a on huge the radar. spotlight. Yeah. Who is this guy that is commanding all of these people as if an army general? Right. It's going to raise some eyebrows. Especially a black man during this time mm-hmm. period. Rising quickly through the ranks with an undeniable charisma, Malcolm is named National Minister of the Nation of Islam by Elijah Muhammad. This means a lot of time away from the family. He's opening up new temples all over the country. He's giving lots of powerful speeches, a lot of which we see in the film. And he's becoming more and more of a public figure. Totally magnetic and absolute natural at this. Lee uses a lot of imagery here to provoke more reaction because we have some news footage He's showing us images of Dr. Martin Luther King mm-hmm. Jr. over Malcolm's words when he's talking about other civil rights leaders using not-so-complimentary terms. And you can't help but be reminded of the two quotes at the end of Do the Right Thing and Lee's insistence that you're not necessarily picking one over the other, but just two different mindsets. Right. And it's something that I think, as white people, it's harder to understand and to really get into that same headspace. And I think, you know, I think it would potentially be somewhat insulting to try to even pass judgment or to try to figure out what we're supposed to interpret the end of that film and then Mm -hmm. juxtaposing that with what we're seeing in this film. Mr. X, uh, before we begin our discussion tonight, the black Muslims, hate mongers, would you mind... Explaining for us the meaning of your name, which is the letter X. Yes, uh, during slavery time, the slave master gave the Negro, so-called Negro, uh, named the so-called Negro after themselves. The Honorable Elijah Muhammad teaches us that once we come into the knowledge of Islam, the knowledge of ourselves, Mm -hmm. we replace our slave name with an X, X in mathematics representing the unknown. Since we've been disconnected or cut off from our own history, our own past, our own culture, our own land, we use the X, the unknown, until we get back to our country. I see. Thank you. Uh, Dr. Payson? Mr. X is a... he's a demagogue. He has no place to go, so so he exaggerates. He's a disservice to every good, law-abiding, church-going American Negro in the country. Mr. Malcolm X. Why do you teach black supremacy? Why, why, why do you teach hate? Well, for the white man to ask the black man why he hates him is like the wolf asking the sheep or the rapist asking the rape, do you hate me? The white man is in no moral position to accuse the black man of anything. Well, this is a black man asking the question. What would you call an educated Negro with a BA or an MA or a BS or a PhD? I'll tell you, you call him a nigger. That's what the white man calls him, a nigger. You have to understand this type of thinking. And to understand this type of man, you must understand that historically, there were two types of slaves, the house Negro and the field Negro. Now, the house Negro, he lived in the house next to his master, in the big house, either in the basement or up in the attic. He dressed pretty good, he ate pretty good, what the master left him. He loved his master. I say he loved his master better than the master loved himself. If the master said, we got a nice house here, you say, yeah, boss, we got a nice house here. Master's house caught on fire, the house Negro would be the one who'd run to put the blaze out. If the master got sick, he said, what's the matter, boss? We sick? We sick. You see, this is the thinking of the house Negro. 
Now, if another slave came up to him and said, let's run away, let's separate, let's get away from this cruel master. He said, why? What's better than what we got here? Run away. I'm not going anywhere. This is the house Negro. Did you In those ever... days, we called him the house nigger. And that's what we call him today because we still got a lot of house niggers running around here. Another cameo appearance, Craig Wasson or Wasson. I don't know how to say his name. The guy from Body Double. Oh, yeah. And Nightmare on Elm Street 3. How about that? He plays the TV host. What all suspected. Look, there's going to be a plethora of clips in this episode. I think, to me, it's probably preferable to have Denzel Washington deliver the words of Malcolm X rather than to have me quote it or try to explain it every time. I think that's better, yeah. I think he does it a little bit better than you would. This is a three-hour and 20-plus minute movie, although the last nine to ten minutes are credits because of all the financial things and different thank Mm -hmm. yous and stuff. It is like a ten-minute credits, but still, over three hours... There's going to be a lot of clips. Right. I think people who have listened to the show recently understand that sometimes we use clips. They're okay with it. Sometimes it's hard for me to know how many is too many. or But then you have movies like this where almost every other scene is a speech, and you're thinking, well, I this is think... good. I could use this as a clip. This is great stuff. Is there a lot of stuff that hits the cutting room floor in terms of items that you would have included, but you're like, eh, this is one clip too many? No. I never yeah. deny myself. Yeah, but if you want to include it, it goes in, right? Yeah. Yeah. But sometimes I do think, man, I am going crazy here. <laughs> Watching Malcolm on television, Brother Baines expresses concerns to Muhammad regarding Malcolm. Mm. He says some of the brothers think that Malcolm wants to lead the nation, that he's becoming too big, too popular, too synonymous with it. He does have that feeling like he's becoming the figurehead or what people are associating with the movement for sure part of it in retrospect because we weren't nearly alive yet but part of it may be the assassination but it does seem that you would hear of malcolm x before you would hear of elijah muhammad or any of the other people yeah but at first i think muhammad is going with the idea that all press is good because membership has grown dramatically there's something that's definitely not covered in the film which is that malcolm x had a close personal friendship with Cassius Clay and recruits him to the Nation of Islam, who he becomes Muhammad Ali. It's good until it isn't. It's one of those things where his publicity and rising fame is good because it's increasing recruitment, but at a certain point then you get jealous because you start to overshadow the guy who's supposedly a prophet to Allah. (laughs) Be like if we got a third guy on the show that was like interesting and funny and had cool things to say, and all of a sudden we got a ton of listeners, but then we'd be like, wait a second. <laughs> Why do you think I've been secretly interviewing potential <laughs> yeah. co-hosts to replace you? Right. In the film, a white student offers her help to Malcolm X, who rudely declines. The scene is based on a real-life event, and Malcolm regretted it after he left the Nation of Islam. He said, quote, Brother, remember the time that white college girl came into the restaurant, the one who wanted to help the black Muslims and the whites get together, and I told her there wasn't a ghost of a chance, and she went away crying. Well, I've lived to regret that incident. In many parts of the African continent, I saw white students helping black people. Something like this kills a lot of argument. I did many things as a black Muslim that I'm sorry for now. I was a zombie then, like all black Muslims. I was hypnotized, pointed in a certain direction, and told to march. Well, I guess a man's entitled to make a fool of himself if he's ready to pay the cost. It cost me 12 years. Hmm. 
I'll say this, regardless of how he felt about it later, makes for a great scene in the movie. Maybe my favorite he, moment. He's not even that brutal in the movie. No, he just says I, nothing. That's all he says. Yeah. Nothing. I know. What but can it, I do? Nothing. But it is the shutdown of the century <laughs> with how excited she is and everything. Yeah. There's a part of me that feels bad if she's genuine. Sometimes you're I, suspicious true. because right. you're like, is this person a plant from the FBI? I don't That's true. think so yeah. because why would they send a white person? That seems like it would never work. The only person who thought it would work was her. Right. I don't even think the FBI would be that dumb yeah. or the CIA to How be many like, people... let's send a white person. <laughs> Just never approaches anyone in her life again. Yeah, when I saw that in the notes, I was hoping that that woman later in life saw that quote and was like, oh, okay, felt better about herself. Yeah, no, died 10 years previously. <laughs> if the so-called Negro in America was truly an American citizen... We wouldn't have a racial problem. If the Emancipation Proclamation was authentic, we wouldn't have a race problem. If the 13th, 14th, and 15th Amendments to the Constitution were authentic, we wouldn't have a race problem. If the Supreme Court desegregation decision were authentic, we would not have a race problem. But you have to see that all of this is hypocrisy. These Negro leaders are running around telling the white man that everything is all right, that we got everything under control, that everything the Honorable Elijah Muhammad teaches is wrong. But I'm telling you, Mr. Muhammad said these things were going to come to pass, and now these things are starting to come to pass. Now these same Negro leaders are running around talking about there's about to be a racial explosion. <laughs> yes, there's going to be a racial explosion. And a racial explosion is more dangerous than an atomic explosion. There's going to be an explosion because black people are dissatisfied. They're dissatisfied not only with the white man, but with these Uncle Tom Negro leaders that are trying to pose as, as spokesmen for you and I. Just like you have a, just like you have a powder keg. When you have a powder keg and there's too many sparks around it, the thing's going to explode. And if the thing that's going to explode is sitting inside the house, and if it explodes, then the house is going to be destroyed. I said the house is going to be destroyed. So the Honorable Elijah Muhammad is teaching you and I and trying to tell the white man to get this powder keg out of his house. Let the black man separate from his house. Let the black man have his own house. Let the black man have his own land and his own property. The Honorable Elijah Muhammad is trying to tell the white man that this thing, this explosion is going to bring down his house. This is what he's trying to tell him. And more importantly, he's trying to tell him that if he doesn't do something about it, if he doesn't do something about it, it's going to explode any day now. And yes, it is. And I'm just here to tell you, and I'm going to make it very short. I'm here to tell you about the Honorable Elijah Muhammad's greatest greatness. His greatest greatness is that he has the only solution for peace in this country. The Honorable Elijah Muhammad's solution is the only solution for you and I. It's the only solution for the white man. Complete separation between the black race and the white race. That's the only solution. After a fiery speech, we have the first signs of trouble. There's an encounter with an emotional man in a stairwell who seems to be alluding to something sinister but is carried away 
by other members of the nation before he comes out and says what he's referring to. You mm-hmm. don't really know. He's alluding to something bad, but the whole thing becomes inevitable, undeniable, a source of conflict in Malcolm's own home with his wife, Betty. Elijah Muhammad has fathered numerous children out of wedlock, contradicting his own teachings and Islam. Isn't this what these things always turn into? These things, what do you mean? I just mean like guys in power. (laughs) (laughs) Just men. It just seems like men in power always turn into Even if you start out not being that, yeah, it's pretty dark. I think that it's not just young women. Some of these women were underage. They were teenagers. Well, yeah, okay. So it's a whole other level of I think at one point, once his eyes are opened, Malcolm referred to it as child rape, even things of that nature. There's a lot of children out of wedlock. The scene where Betty Shabazz argues with Malcolm about his misplaced loyalties to Elijah Muhammad and the Nation of Islam were contrived mostly to add dramatic effect to the film. The real-life Shabazz said, The scene was inaccurate as she and Malcolm never argued nor raised their voices at one another, and she supported her husband at every turn. Now, I don't know if I necessarily believe that, but that might be a thing in Muslim culture, though. Maybe that was more of a cultural thing that she just wouldn't do that, but most men and women do argue at some point. Mm Mm-hmm. I, th- I would say so. Mm-hmm, you say with that yeah. dazed, far-off look. <laughs> Just dead behind the eyes. <laughs> Sitting outside my apartment in 45 minutes with a gun in your mouth, daring yourself to do it. <laughs> yeah. One quick anecdote on that, and that ties back in with the Malcolm X Criterion 4K. So I told Lindsay that I would try to limit my physical media buying this year. Huge mistake. Yeah. I said it. I would do 10 for the year. What? <laughs> Malcolm X was number nine. It's March. And by the way, after I got my criterion order, like all confirmed and everything, $50 gift card in the email. And I'm on nine. Well, you got to wait till the next sale to use a $50 gift card. Well, I know, but 10 has to be used on a criterion. There's no way you're staying at 10. I've had <laughs> orders, like hauls, from yeah. one store that were more than 10. I... <laughs> what do you mean, 10? <laughs> what? Marriage is a tough thing, guys. Well. <laughs> <laughs> we'll see how long it lasts. Yeah, yeah. 10. <laughs> the scene ultimately functions as a wake-up call moment. Betty dropping some truth bombs on her husband here because... She believes it right away. Malcolm doesn't believe it at first because it's being reported in the newspaper, which he associates with the white devil, whatever. The white man is in charge of the newspaper, so they're doing a divide and conquer. He doesn't want to accept it, even though the evidence is starting to mount. But it's not just about the accusations against Muhammad, but also some Bane's shit thrown in there, also some money shit. Why does all of the other brothers have so much more money than us? And he's like, what is this about? You want new clothes? You want a new And she's like, it's not about that stuff. Right. It's like, why is this happening? It seems like there's a lot of shady corruption things going on here. Not exactly in line I with what know. they're teaching. Everything's on the uh, up and up here. They don't have life insurance. He's saying, well, the nation would take care of you if anything happened to me. And she's like, would they? <laughs> yeah, questionable. Open your eyes, is what she says. So let's get into it a little bit. Rumors were circulating among the Nation of Islam members that Elijah was conducting extramarital affairs with young nation secretaries, which would constitute a serious violation of the nation's teachings. After first discounting the rumors, Malcolm X came to believe them after he spoke 
with Elijah's son Wallace and with the women making the accusations. Wallace is absent from the film entirely. Malcolm X publicly accused Elijah of having eight children with six different teenage girls who were his, quote, private secretaries. Elijah confirmed the rumors in 1963, attempting to justify his behavior by referring to the precedents set by biblical prophets. Over a series of national TV interviews between 1964 and 1965, Malcolm X provided testimony of his investigation, corroboration and confirmation by Elijah Muhammad himself of multiple counts of child rape. During this investigation, Malcolm X learned seven of those eight girls had become pregnant as a result of this. He also revealed an assassination attempt made on his life through a discovered explosive device in his car, as well as the death threats he was receiving in response to his exposure of Elijah Muhammad. This is the ultimate betrayal. Yeah. Because think about who Malcolm was when Baines comes up to him in prison. Right. He's a hustler. He thinks that what Baines is doing is a hustle. Mm -hmm. And he's repeatedly assured this is the real deal. This is God's words. Confidently. Elijah Muhammad is a prophet. He has the word of Allah. These are the things you have to do to be a spiritual man, to clean up your life. And Malcolm X, when he comes out of prison, is a different man. Yeah, this was a success story. He is a family man. There's actually a... A line later spoken by an FBI agent who's spying on him saying that compared to King, this right. guy's a monk because yes. Martin Luther King did have some extramarital affairs and whatnot. But Malcolm X doesn't do anything. He doesn't do drugs. He doesn't eat pork. He doesn't cheat on his wife. Doesn't do anything. Now he's finding out that some of these people at the top, not just Elijah Muhammad. Muhammad is the worst, obviously, because he is the center of this whole movement, this whole thing that's going on. He's positioned himself as a prophet, which you can't really make any higher claim other than if you actually claim you are God, I guess. But some of the other guys as well seem like maybe they're living like too nice of a lifestyle, whereas Malcolm has a very modest, small home, not a lot of money. What exactly is going on here? But I think the thing with Muhammad is really the ultimate of the betrayals. Definitely. For sure. And that's the thing. His life turned out in a positive way up to this point because of all of this influence that came into his life. But it, the rug's pulled out from under you when this guy that you look up to is all of a sudden not everything's as it seemed. The damaged relationship between Malcolm and Muhammad is frayed further in the aftermath of the assassination of President John F. Kennedy. Malcolm comments that the assassination was the product of white violence that has been prevalent in America since its founding, comparing the killing to, quote, the chickens coming home to roost. This statement damages Malcolm's reputation and Muhammad suspends him from speaking to the press or at temples for 90 days. Which definitely seems like it is a significant blow to him, because even though his intentions are generally good, It does seem like he feeds a lot off of this life and being this character and this persona and speaking at these events and galvanizing people. I mean, he's a natural born speaker, preacher, speech giver, whatever you want to say. So taking that away from him, I do think is significant. Well, in a big way, that's his job at this point. It's the same thing as if you're being suspended from what you do. Right. 
On December 1st, 1963, when asked for a comment about the assassination of President John F. Kennedy, Malcolm X said it was a case of the chickens coming home to roost. He added that chickens coming home to roost never did make me sad. They've always made me glad. The New York Times wrote, in further criticism of Mr. Kennedy, the Muslim leader cited the murders of Patrice Lumumba, Congo leader of Medgar Evers, civil rights leader, and the Negro girls bombed earlier this year in a Birmingham, Alabama church. These, he said, were instances of other chickens coming home to roost. The remarks prompted a widespread public outcry. The Nation of Islam, which had sent a message of condolence to the Kennedy family and ordered its ministers not to comment on the assassination, publicly censured their former rising star, Malcolm X retained his post and rank as minister, but was prohibited from public speaking for 90 days. Some footage from Oliver Stone's JFK was used here. Stone, at one point, was interested in directing Malcolm X as well as a follow-up to JFK. Wow. He also wanted Denzel Washington. Yeah, well, he was the guy. This is a Denzel Washington role. The first mention of a murder plot against Malcolm comes up in the aftermath of this. And who was behind it? The brothers, Muhammad himself, both. Obviously, I don't think anyone would move without Muhammad's orders. One would think. It is extreme, though. The charge against Malcolm in their minds is spreading untruths about Muhammad. It's interesting. In the film, certain people seem to know that what Elijah Muhammad is being accused of is true, and they are aware that he admitted it to Malcolm. But it's unclear if that was ever a public admission. So some people may actually still believe that Malcolm X is lying about these things. The timeline of this is a little bit confusing. I don't know what all they think he's lying about or what all they know is true or who knows what or whatever. But you would think that if other people besides maybe Baines and Malcolm knew the truth, that some other people would be like, what the fuck? I know. What's going on? It's a long time coming, though, because Malcolm, irregardless of the Kennedy thing, irregardless of the accusations against Muhammad, has started to become a threat to Muhammad's leadership anyway, because Malcolm is just so much more popular and known. He's got that charisma that people are really getting behind. On March 8th, 1964, Malcolm X publicly announced his break from the Nation of Islam, Though still a Muslim, he felt that the nation had, quote, gone as far as it can because of its rigid teachings. He said he was planning to organize a black nationalist organization to heighten the political consciousness of African Americans. He also expressed a desire to work with other civil rights leaders, saying that Elijah Muhammad had prevented him from doing so in the past. So he offers an olive branch to Martin Luther King and some of the other prominent figures of the time that he had previously shit-talked, sure, for lack of a better term. <laughs> By this point, Malcolm has become Malcolm Shabazz or Malik El Shabazz, but for the sake of his public name and public figure status, he still goes by Malcolm X. Also in early 64, Malcolm makes a pilgrimage to Mecca where he meets Muslims from all races, including white. This is something that is a part of being a Muslim. It's something that you have to do, I guess. Yeah. And there's definitely a little change in his whole demeanor over this. I think it's a wake-up call. This is the Holy Land, Mecca. This is as real as it gets. Right. And he's seeing they aren't doing things the way we're doing No, no. They have all races of people here. It's completely different than what he thought. 
and it completely changes his perspective and outlook. There is multiple moments of that throughout the film where I thought something was one way, and now my eyes are open to something else. Yeah, which makes Malcolm a rare and unique figure in that he is a public persona, someone that was in the public eye for a significant portion of his life and was willing to change and adapt and admit mistakes. As I Definitely. When I read that quote about how he felt about things after the fact. Warner Brothers wanted to use New Jersey instead of Egypt. Wow. <laughs> Holy shit. Well, you can see they wanted to I know. keep this in Tighten check. It. Yeah. We can tell from the guys taking photographs that Malcolm's under constant surveillance, even in these other countries, likely the CIA. That's a thing. Sometimes you hear these stories about filmmaking and, okay, well, you understand. You don't want it to be heaven's gate. But then you understand these directors being, what are you talking about? People know. <laughs> you want this to happen in New Jersey? Yeah, I don't even really know how Good that would have worked. Probably not a lot of pyramid and no, Sphinx footage. I'm thinking not. This was the first non-documentary film that was given permission to film in Mecca. The film's second unit comprised solely of Muslims filmed all of the scenes there, as Spike Lee is not a Muslim. He was not permitted access. That's interesting. So I took that to mean that anytime you actually see Denzel, it's not actually Mecca. It's maybe outside of it or whatever. Yeah, it could be. Because Denzel is not a right. Muslim either. But I don't know. I, I'm not entirely sure which scenes the second unit filmed or what. Malcolm, are you prepared to go to the United Nations at this point and ask that charges be brought against the United States for its treatment of the American Negroes? Oh, yes. Oh, yes. Uh, the audience will have to be quiet. Please, please. Yes, as I stated earlier that... Um, those nations, African nations, Latin nations, Asian nations, are, are very hypocritical when they stand up in the UN and, and denounce the racism practiced in South Africa and at the same time say absolutely nothing about the practice of racism here in American society. Now, I wouldn't be a man if I didn't do so. I would not be a man. Are you prepared now to work with some of the other leaders of some of the other civil rights organizations? Yes, we're prepared to work with any groups, leaders, organizations, as long as they're genuinely interested in uh, results, does positive new, results. Does your new beard have any religious significance? <laughs> uh, no, not particularly, but I think that uh, as black people in America strive to throw off the shackles of of a mental colonialism, they will also reflect their desire to throw off the shackles of uh, cultural colonialism. I believe that a mental and a cultural uh, migration back to Africa, not necessarily a physical migration, not at this point, but a mental and cultural migration back to Africa, which only means that we reaffirm our, our bond with our brothers over there, would help to strengthen uh, us here in America, black people in America, not only spiritually, but as well as giving us the incentive to solve some of our problems here at, uh, at home. One of your more controversial remarks sometimes back was a call for black people to get rifles and form rifle clubs. Do you still favor that for self-defense? Well, I don't see why that's controversial. I think that if white people find themselves the victims of the same kind of violence that black people have found themselves victims of here in America, and if the government was either unable or unwilling to do anything about it, uh, I think that it would be intelligence on their part to defend themselves. What about the guns, Malcolm? When you tell your people to 
stop being violent against my people, I'll tell my people to put away their guns. So then you are still an extremist. Get your hand out of my pocket! Damn! Next question. Part of the performance, which is mesmerizing, you have the hand motions, even the eyes and the looks that Denzel's giving, the mannerisms, the, the little stutter here and there, constantly cleaning the glasses. This is like mm-hmm. a meticulous, well-researched performance. During his first speech back, when he's returned to America, a man yells, get your hand out of my pocket. It's actually Wendell Pierce who played Bunk from The Wire. This is a dry run. This is a test. Uh-huh. Because they show the man, and he's standing by himself. Right. And then he just turns and kind of briskly walks right out the door. Yeah. Unsettling. Feels like something's off. I think we're supposed to take as viewers that Malcolm kind of understands what's happening yes. a little bit. But the movie, at least, is giving this idea that things are set in motion. He's on a train track. He kind of knows that it's inevitable. I don't know if that's really how it was in real life, but that's how the movie kind of frames it in a certain way. That's right. The image of Denzel Washington holding the M1 carbine and peering out the curtains is a direct visual recreation of an iconic photo that appeared in Ebony magazine, I think also in Life magazine as well. Okay. They actually started as that black and white right. still photo, and then it turns into the film again. Yeah, which looks cool. It's clear that Malcolm's life is in danger. The phone's constantly ringing at the house. Absolutely. Sometimes people say stuff, sometimes they don't. Various it, threats. It seems like it's a ticking time bomb now. Malcolm, having lost his faith in the Nation of Islam, publicly announces that he is founding the Organization of Afro-American Unity, which teaches tolerance instead of racial separation. He is exiled from the Nation of Islam, and his house is firebombed in early 1965. Terrifying that this would happen. Well, there are are some heartbreaking parallels to the firebombing of his childhood home, or Mm -hmm. at least the house being set on fire. Malcolm experienced the same thing, and Lee cuts between the two events. It was tremendously upsetting watching it because it's not him and his wife's room that's hit. It's his daughter's room that's hit. And the, the daughters are so young, and they're in danger. I know. It's sad. Another appearance of a frequent Lee collaborator, Michael Imperioli. Oh, yeah. Reporter outside. (laughs) Christopher. Malcolm doesn't mince words. He blames the Nation of Islam and Elijah Muhammad without hesitation. However, their response is that they owned his home and were about to take it back, which they mention kind of in the movie. Okay. Because the guy says, I hope this isn't a case of if I can't have it, nobody can. Right. That's what he's referring to. Gotcha. Because they were actually going to take his house back shortly. Which makes sense. So they wanted to spin the narrative that he did it himself. The movie definitely does not take that position. No. They don't get a ton into it in the movie. Obviously, when he's part of the one crew, there's a bunch of insulation and people around him. But now he does sort of have a whole other group of supporters. Yeah, some of these people appear throughout the film as guys that became part of the nation after him or as a direct result of him. Yeah. There's the guy in the immediate aftermath of the Brother Johnson incident at Mm -hmm. that diner. Right. And then there's that other guy he's introduced to by Baines, but it's shortly after Malcolm has joined too. Yeah. And those two guys are the guys that seem to be close to him at the end and stay loyal to him. Muhammad Ali did not leave 
the nation of Islam to join Malcolm, and he later said that it was one of the biggest regrets of his life was to not go with Malcolm. As we were talking about earlier, at this point in the film, you kind of have the building of tension because of that dread of history. We know from history what's going to happen. I know, and it just feels like you're on that build now. You're on a conveyor belt that you can't get off of. Malcolm tells Betty that he believes the Nation of Islam is receiving help in their actions, threats, and campaign against him. We see that his hotel room is bugged, seemingly confirming his suspicions. The death of Malcolm X, I was trying to read into it as much as I could. It's frustrating. I don't know that we really have a complete answer. We have a motive, and we have some of the perpetrators, and we understand some of it, but any allusions to a grander conspiracy beyond just the Nation of Islam members, I don't know. That's never really clear. Even the exact specific collaborators, conspirators, are ultimately unclear, I guess, because of the convictions being overturned, and then the one guy saying that those other two guys definitely weren't a part of it, and then those are the two guys that end up being paroled and then eventually called innocent later, so I I don't know. Yeah, a lot of murky details there. A lot of cinematic joy we have in building towards this moment. A Change is Gonna Come by Sam Cooke is playing. That's right. Very poetic, very beautiful, sad, tragic, but... Uh Ultimately, very poignant, too. This is you, you can really feel it. Definitely. Sam Cooke, just one of those, a lot of emotion in the voice. Giancarlo Esposito. Oh, yeah. Who was in Do the Right Thing, also. Mm-hmm. Gus Fring from Breaking Bad. He plays a man named Talmadge X. Hare, or Thomas Hagen, or Muhadid Abdul Halim. I'm not sure which name he was at the time. He's the only guy that is officially confirmed, although I do think that in 1992, Lee uses some of the other names for some of those other men, too. But as I said, some of that stuff has changed in the 30 years as far as who they think actually was involved or whatever. Malcolm senses what's coming. He even uses the phrase in the lead-up, a time for martyrs. Uh huh. And he does certain things that sort of open the door for it to happen. On February 21st, 1965, Malcolm prepares to speak before a crowd at the Audubon Ballroom in Harlem, but disciples of the Nation of Islam shoot him several times. It's particularly brutal, especially for Definitely. a PG-13 film. It's rough because it feels like it's one of those things that it's over with the first or maybe second shot, and then no. it's... I know, but I mean it's over in the sense that he's not living from this. Oh, yeah. And then there's just a barrage after that. And it's right in front of his wife and daughters who are seated in the front row of the auditorium. They use the same pickpocket distraction. They also throw a smoke bomb onto the ground. It's total chaos before the gunmen run to the front of the stage. One of Malcolm's bodyguards shoots one of the shooters, a man originally named Thomas Hagen, Hmm. in the leg before a furious crowd beats Hagen. Malcolm is rushed to the hospital but is pronounced dead on arrival. As I said, Hagen, also known as Talmaj X. Hayer and Mahadid Abdul Halim. Two of the other men, Norman 3X Butler and Thomas 15X Johnson, were identified and convicted too, 
However, in 2021, with both having already been paroled years earlier, their convictions were overturned, and both men were exonerated. Les Payne and Tamara Payne, in their Pulitzer Prize-winning biography, The Dead Are Arising, The Life of Malcolm X, claim that the assassins were members of the Nation of Islam's Newark, New Jersey mosque, William 25X, also known as William Bradley, who fired the shotgun, Leon Davis, and the aforementioned Thomas Hayer, a.k.a. Thomas Hagen, a.k.a. Talmadge X. Hayer, <laughs> okay, whatever. Yeah. That's why I was confused, because sometimes they were calling him Thomas Hagen and sometimes Thomas Hayer, but then okay. sometimes the Nation of Islam Muslim names. So I, I don't know what exactly his name is. Conciliary. He was definitely involved because they shot him and right. started beating the I shit know. out of him. <laughs> yeah. The other gunman... I don't know if that's ever been official, but that was another theory that was out there. The way the movie plays out, it does feel like Malcolm's crew could have done a little bit more here. I know the main guy is sort of Well, there were a lot of, of other people running around. I True. think they probably didn't want to just start firing right. all over the place. Yeah. And it, it is just like a moment of chaos and pandemonium. And the movie changes at this point because after the assassination is depicted in the film, all footage shown of Malcolm X is that of the real man, mostly in black and white. Right. We don't really get any real fictionalized things aside from the very end, but you don't get like a funeral or Mm -hmm. aftermath or arrests or investigations or anything. It just sort of switches gears to be a summarized ending with, a series of clips showing the aftermath of Malcolm's death. Martin Luther King Jr. delivers a eulogy to Malcolm. And Ossie Davis recites a speech at Malcolm's funeral. We would know Ossie Davis as the mayor from Do the Right Thing, but he actually oh, did yeah. deliver a speech at Malcolm's funeral. Okay. Here, at this final hour, in this quiet place, Harlem has come to bid farewell to one of its brightest hopes, extinguished now and gone from us forever. It is not in the memory of man that this beleaguered, unfortunate, but nonetheless proud community has found a braver, more gallant young champion than this Afro-American who lies before us unconquered still. I say the word again as he would want me to, Afro-American. Afro-American Malcolm. Malcolm had stopped being Negro years ago. It had become too small, too puny, too weak a word for him. Malcolm was bigger than that. Malcolm had become an Afro-American, and he wanted so desperately that we, that all his people, would become Afro-Americans too. There are those who still consider it their duty, as friends of the Negro people, to tell us to revile him, to flee, even from the presence of his memory, to save ourselves by writing him out of the history of our turbulent times. And we will smile. They will say that he is of hate, a fanatic, a racist, who can only bring evil to the cause for which you struggle. And we will answer and say unto them, did you ever talk 
to Brother Malcolm? Did you ever touch him or have him smile at you? Did you ever really listen to him? Was he ever himself associated with violence or any public disturbance? For if you did, you would know him. And if you knew him, you would know why we must honor him. Malcolm was our manhood, our living black manhood. This was his meaning to his people. And in honoring him, we honor the best in ourselves. However much we may have differed with him, or with each other about him and his value as a man, let his going from us serve only to bring us together now. Consigning these mortal remains to earth, the common mother of all, securing the knowledge that what we place in the ground is no more now a man, but a seed, which after the winter of our discontent will come forth again to meet us and we shall know him then for what he was and is, a prince, our own black shining prince who didn't hesitate to die because he loved us so. And so today, May 19th, we celebrate Malcolm X's birthday because he was a great, great Afro-American. Malcolm X is you. All of you. And you are Malcolm X. I'm Malcolm X! 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 I am 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 Malcolm X! As Brother Malcolm said, we declare our right on this earth to be a man, to be a human being, to be given the rights of a human being, to be respected as a human being in this society, on this earth, in this day, which we intended to bring into existence. By any means necessary. And then in one of the most crazy cameos you could ever imagine in any film ever, Nelson Mandela I delivers know. a speech to a school quoting an excerpt from one of Malcolm's own speeches. For me, this completely caught me off guard. It's supposed to be a South African classroom, and he quotes Malcolm directly but he did refuse to repeat the last four words by any means necessary so spike lee inserted black and white footage of malcolm x saying it himself the line originated in jean paul sartre's play les mains Salées" or dirty hands yeah this would have been not that long after mandela was released from prison i know it does kind of work as a cool artistic choice though too that it ends with the footage of Malcolm saying, by any means necessary. The film features three generations of Washingtons. Denzel, of course, his son, John David Washington, who I think is a child somewhere in the film. And oh, sure. His mother, Lennis Washington. Louis Farrakhan, who would eventually become the leader of the Nation of Islam and is to this day 
was removed entirely after making threats towards Lee because he was there when Malcolm was alive too. Muhammad Ali, as I said, not really represented in the film either. He does appear no. in some of the archival footage at the very end. I know, you would have thought that was not really a part of it. Made its way in. It's an epic film in the truest sense. Definitely. Because by the time you do the whole point A and point B thing, point A and point B are so distant. I know. <laughs> in so many ways that by the time you arrive at point B, point A feels like a completely different movie. Exactly. A completely different person, a completely different story. It's about, yeah, different people. It's such a journey, and it really does encapsulate not only a man's life, but such a crucial figure in American history's life, while also remaining true to Lee's artistic style. You have that shot of Malcolm going into the Audubon Society before that lady stops him on the sidewalk where he's doing that thing Uh where he's not really walking. It's like he's sort of floating. That's right. Lee uses in most of his films, if not all of them. I know. And you have the different artistic choices. There's a scene early in the film where... Malcolm is in the backseat of a car with Sophia, and the sky around them is that very chalky blue. That's right. Now you're going back. very unique and different. I'm just saying there's a lot of cool artistic choices, too. Fun camera movement. Mm -hmm. I know. You talked about the moon thing. That one jumps out. It's a very special movie. So thank you to Peter for the listener request. Obviously, we appreciate the support. Definitely. We hope you got some enjoyment out of it. Yeah, it's a little bit of a tough one to do just because since it's such a an important, significant, serious film, you don't want to really right. inject our jackassery into Hard it. Hard for us to, you know, <laughs> goof on it in any way or usually find our way to insert ourselves into the story somehow. Not really able to do that here, you know? <laughs> Other than just to imagine being in prison and dying immediately. <laughs> <laughs> well, we got that. I would like maybe if our listeners started requesting things like teen movies from the 90s, things that we can sort of put ourselves into slash goof on. But it's good to do like an undeniably classic film. No, yeah, of course. Not to blow the lid off the whole thing. I know that Peter invested some money into the show, but it is possible that we would have got to this eventually. I had a, a number of Spike Lee films that I wanted to get to, and this was one of them, so... It's no stretch for us to have covered it. A lot of the listener requests do sort of have parallel thinking to us. Sometimes they go off the rails a little bit into stuff we would have never even known about or thought about. So that's cool, too. We thank you so much for listening, everyone, of course. And if you are unable to donate any money to us through the tip jar or you can't afford a listener request... Stop listening to the show. (laughs) The complete opposite of where I was going. <laughs> I was going to say, we appreciate you too, of course. Don't feel bad about it. We get it. Absolutely. We, we thought were we were pricing this above what people would actually pay, and yet here we are with people giving us money. Now we're overwhelmed. Yeah, I didn't think that anyone was that interested. Next year, the prices will be higher for sure. So if you really want to get a listener request, oh make boy, sure you do go. it now. <laughs> Next year, $10,000. <laughs> Folks, okay. If you want to get in under the old price model... You have until this day yeah. <laughs> at this time. <laughs> I'll start saying that now, and then every episode for the rest of the year, yeah. Matt will be going crazy. What are you doing? What? What? Vincent stopped making pics. Well, how am I going to know what movies to see? 
We have a wide variety of gene picks. Gene's trash. I'm Gene. Anyway, before we wrap things up, I'll do a quick recommendation. I already talked about it. You can rent this movie on streaming. It's a nice companion piece to this film. Now, I will say that they cover a lot of the speeches in Spike Lee's film, so it is a little bit of overlap. But Malcolm X, 1972, directed by Arnold Pearl, who was one of the writers of this film, even though he passed away around that time, I guess. Narrated by the great James Earl Jones, it is mostly comprised of archival footage, of press conferences, interviews, TV appearances, speeches, etc. It's mostly Malcolm's own words, and you get a little bit of the same story, like the whole beginning of him being a public figure up until the very end and the whole journey there. It's only... 90 minutes so it's okay. actually like half as long as yeah, this. Yeah, a little bit difference in runtime there. It's pretty cheap on Vudu. It was like 2 or 3 bucks. I enjoyed it. I thought it was a, a nice companion piece. Cool. It helped paint the picture a little bit more. Nothing for me. Nothing for me. No. Okay. Follow the show on Twitter at @greatestpod. I'm actually feeling pressure right now to tweet something cuz it's been a while. I guess I'll probably have to tweet a link out to the Copland episode or something tonight because God knows too much time's going by. Yet I'm always <laughs> telling people to follow us on there. Yeah, I don't know. Part of it's living for the DMs. Sure, listeners to DM uh, DM the show. I know with their thoughts. Or that whatever. was like the first thing that brought some life back to the show was people sliding into the DMs. Yeah, it, we're interacting on Twitter in general. Yeah, at greatest pod on Twitter and greatestpod at gmail for an email. If you'd like your email read on the show. Let us know. Even if you've been listening for a few years and you've interacted with us before and you feel silly, it gives us a little bit of interesting content. I wasn't going to read one on this episode anyway because I felt like this is our first big-time listener request. This movie's super long and important, and I don't want to bring our own stupid bullshit into it. But, (laughs) you know, whenever we have an email here or there, I am going to read them. So if you'd like your email read, greatestpod at gmail.com. Dear Zach and Matt, Proud ass clown here. (laughs) Yeah, that's how a lot of them start. (laughs) If you'd like a sticker or a listener request, let us know on Twitter or by email. If you'd like to donate money to the show, you're thinking, all right, well, I don't want to pay 50 bucks or 75 bucks for a listener request, but I could throw like a 5 or a 10 or a 20. Hey, you can do that too. Chip jar, cash app on Twitter at Greatest Pod. And please give us. What's that? I assure you we're open. Please give us a rating and review on Apple Podcasts and make sure you're subscribed to the podcast and telling your friends about it. My God. And on Letterboxd, Zach1983 and Matt Crosby on there. I reluctantly paid for another year of patron. I actually changed my debit card so it wasn't going to work at first. And they kept sending me emails and I'm like, I don't know if I want to update my Hmm. debit card. And then I did it. Yeah, yeah. One more year of this bullshit. <laughs> and then we'll see how, how interested I am next year. All right. Anyway, thank you so much for listening. Thanks again to Peter for the listener request. I hope we did okay with this. This was tough. Tough. Appreciate you, though, Peter. <laughs> yeah, of course. Definitely. Anyway, thanks for listening, and we'll talk to you soon. A lot of episodes coming up. That's right. Between now and One Trashy Summer in June, get ready. It's a big year. It's becoming one because yeah. of these listener requests. <laughs> All right, talk to you soon. I was born by the river 
this in South Africa. Yes. Now, you've been there before, right? Yeah. Maybe well, uh, not to work. Yeah, okay. Yeah, I visited Mr. Mandela. I was invited to, to meet him. And well, how to... cool is that? Yeah, yeah. I had, I had, yeah. I had breakfast. I had breakfast with Archbishop Desmond Tutu and lunch with Nelson Mandela. Wow. And actually, when he came to the States, yeah. the last time he came, came to California, came to our house. Yeah. Well, that's pretty good. Now, you see, that's... I'll tell you a funny story, too. Yeah. <laughs> He'll be mad at me for telling this, but I'll tell it anyway. Yeah. Uh, <laughs> Sylvester Stallone, he lives up in the, we're like in a gated community. He lives over there. And he, he wasn't invited. He, we yeah. had, well, well, I mean, I would have invited him, but yeah. we had about maybe 40, 50 people there, right. you know, and I had my children. I said, you can invite one friend and, you know, Oprah Winfrey, different people were there. And the security, they had security helicopters like it was the president. Yeah. They're like, uh, Mr. Washington, uh, uh, Rocky's out front. He's pacing. <laughs> he's like, he's like looking in the gate. Like, I said, should we? He's like, should we let him in? I'm like, yeah, let's him yeah, come yeah, in. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> they said he was outside, looking sad. Like, yeah. man, <laughs> <laughs> can you see Rocky? Hey, 
Yo, Mr. Mandela, how you hey, doing? Hey, Mr. Mandela, how you doing? How you doing? How you doing? Yo, Adrian! <laughs> it's Mandela here. It's Mandela over here. <laughs>